Welcome to Walking Backwards. I'm Brad Grimet. This week's guest is Michael Sellers. He's a producer and director. And uh, his life is so much more interesting than just that part of it. Uh, you'll find out all about it. It's definitely one of the best interviews I've ever I've ever done. And not because of me, because he's just that fascinating and interesting. And uh, I hope you love it. I think you will. Um, if you'd like to also hear his best day, worst day, go to patreon.com slash walking backwards and sign up and support the show. And you can hear all the best day, worst days. Uh, thank you very much to Walter Clausen for their continued support. I don't know uh, if any of you have checked out their new website yet, uh, walterclausen.com, but um, it's been revamped and it's pretty cool. So check it out and check out their Steadicam products they make. And uh, follow me on Instagram, uh, the number one giant robot. Um, you know, it, it's going to help me if you guys follow me and like my, my, my stuff. I mean, obviously... If you're listening, hopefully you like the interviews. Um, but it'll help me with uh, help me with sponsors and stuff to have you know more social media engagement. So do that and hit me up on Facebook, friend uh, friend request me or whatever, and um, and yeah, and do that thing. As much as I hate it, it's kind of a necessity. So thank you for doing that. And if you'd like to comment or uh, or send me a message to tell me how much you like the show. Or tell me how much you hate me. You can do so at walkingbackwardspodcast at gmail.com. All right, guys, uh, I really think you're going to like this one. I hope you do. Here's Michael Sellers. Michael Sellers, hello. How are you? I'm doing great. How about you? Great. I screwed the first thing up, so this is our second try. <laughs> That's okay. Take two. We're allowed to do that, right? <laughs> yeah, we are, I think. And, uh, and yeah, I'm glad to have you here. And, um, I'm glad you're you're doing well and looking well. And I'm feeling pretty good. I mean, you know, some years have passed since we saw each other. Yeah. And uh, I think we're both kind of hanging in there pretty well. So Yeah. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. It would have been. Oh, wait. Oh, nine. Yes. I, I think I said we shot it in the Bahamas in 08. And we did. I think we did those pickup shots in early 2009. I think you're right. You know? I remember it being chilly. I think it might have been January. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Somewhere yeah. way up in Santa Clarita or That's something. That's where it was. Santa Cruz, some studio up there, some setup up there. I can't yeah, remember. some weird little... Yeah. Yeah, yeah I remember. Yeah, that it was, was fun, though. It was days. like a reunion. It was, because we hadn't seen each other in a while, and, you know, it was a real nice day. Yeah. Or a day or two. I think it was a couple of days. It was the, It was cooler than the, the Bahamas part. <laughs> Bahamas was hot. Remember how brutal it was? I, I had the best tan. Holy cow. <laughs> you would be the one to feel it the most because of lugging all around 70 pounds, uh, you know, yeah. all day long. Although, although honestly, we didn't do that much Steadicam on that movie. We mm. did a lot of handheld. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you remember I got, I got, uh, I sprained my back. Yep, I do remember that. <sighs> it was because of all the rocking boats yeah. and trying to, keeping the camera level while Oh, that reminds, somewhere out there, there's this photograph of us on a, on a platform out yes. in the middle of the middle. Remember, I'm lying on one end of it to be like the ballast to keep it from tipping over. Well, remember when we got on it and I had to go to the one side and you started coming over and I was and like, like no, I no, don't no, think no. you should come over here. Yeah, I didn't. And I, after that, I was I was reclining on the opposite corner keep trying to keep us afloat. And we were still, I was yeah. like... Yeah, you were... I think I was on my knees, but I was like up to my hips in water. I know. And I looked <laughs> to me like one little push and you could go right head first in the water with a nice red camera with uh yeah, yeah, yeah i do remember that i remember we put that thing in the wa underwater housing yeah it might have been the first red ever in an underwater housing i don't know but 
I just thought, oh, I hope it works because nobody made a housing for it. I, yet. I remember at the time that was the whole thing was it was a prototype housing yeah. that we were using. And uh, it seemed to work. The camera survived. No, it worked great. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, besides the the camera was overheating just because it couldn't yeah. ventilate itself. But other yeah. than that, you yeah. know, it was it kept all the water out. That's the important part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that, that was, was a fun job. I have a lot of really great memories of that job yeah, because did. the crew hung out together a lot, and we we'd all swim in the pool. Even yeah. if we got home at five in the morning, we'd all swim in the pool and drink vodka and you know <laughs> and the security there didn't give a shit yeah we'd have bottles in the pool they they're like hey you guys having fun we're like yeah. yep <laughs> meanwhile at the other hotel i think the west end or yeah across the way yeah that's where i was right that's where you were in the actors and stuff and and uh it, you couldn't be in the pool like one second no. after 10 and they're all the <laughs> yeah, yeah but meanwhile you had wi-fi and uh we had wi-fi i remember all of that and i also remember like it would be like if the call time was 7 a.m., Lila, our DP, would be there waiting for me at about 5.15 to go over the shot list and everything. Uh, and so I was like, I would get back, have my dinner, take a shower, and, uh, you know, try to get ready for the next day. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I probably would have been in trouble if I'd been over where you guys were. I'd be out there. Yeah, you would have been with us. <laughs> yeah. Well, we took over pretty much the whole hotel. Yeah. I mean, maybe not the whole, but a lot of it. And um, I've heard that's gone now, that hotel. Yeah, I think so. I haven't been back in a while, but I've heard it is gone. It was great. I mean, I know it was kind of old, and it wasn't like it was very much not fancy. But for me, it was awesome. I'm pr- kind of simple anyway. But yeah. like uh, in brain oh, and I, in body, I, yeah, I stayed there on my pr- on like when I went there for the location scouting and preliminary trips and all. I stayed at the same hotel. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. I, yeah. Stay in the big one I just I had I had the 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 yachts would come in mm-hmm. and park their slips. And literally, I could throw them a, I right. could I could throw them a beer if they asked for one. Like right. they were that close, so I'd, uh, I'd go on my balcony and so uh, for me it was great. I loved it, but yeah, um, yeah that was that was a fun one. That was great. Um, I want to go back to before you were directing. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I I think you went. Did you go to the University of Delaware? I did. You were for like, undergraduate, yeah, right? And then you went to film school at NYU, right? right? NYU. Yeah. Um, um. Yeah, you did very well in college. Were you summa cum laude or uh, magna cum laude? And yeah, uh, I was. Yeah, I, I was. I went. I went to college on a. You're a big guy, so I'll mention football scholarship. So I played football. Oh, did you really? Yeah, oh, I didn't know that. I played. Well, you're. Are you my sight? You're. You're taller than me. I'm aren't six you? five. Oh, okay. We're the same height. Yeah, yeah, I'm six five. And, but you're yeah. beefier than I. In am. those days, well, I was. I was. Uh, I was lean. Oh. I was like under two hundred pounds and couldn't get over two hundred pounds. Uh, it was only a little bit later after I got out of college. That was me in high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah like that. But, but then uh, got to the you know had a had a good college experience. Um, very, very much like Delaware. And um, I was studying English and classics. But I took a, I took a uh, a film course somewhere along the way and kind of started falling in love with film. Mm. And uh, and it got to be my senior year. And you know I had a couple of sort of a plan A, plan B kind of thing. And then NYU worked out and got in NYU graduate film school and went there and um, was really grateful for having that opportunity and kind of got started in film. Well, that's before everybody was going to film school. When yeah. That would have been... 75. Okay. Yeah. Now there's a film school. Now there's 20 in every city. Yeah. Um, what was that, a two-year? It's a three-year program. A three-year? Okay. Yeah. But I didn't finish the third year. I left and came back. I, can't, or I, I was so sure that I was going to take Hollywood by storm. And I had a job offer, and I said, okay, I'm going to go. I leave early. 
And uh, I don't know if that was a good idea or not because things didn't, you know, immediately come my way when I got out here the first time. But um, but I think I got I got a lot of good benefit from NYU. But I could have stayed on to finish the MFA, and that would have been good. But uh, didn't. So you know, kind of uh, came on out and started trying to right. see if I could get my get some traction out here. And how long were you out here before you got sidetracked by another uh, profession? <laughs> uh, about two, I guess it would be two, three years. Mm-hmm. You know, I was and I and I was I was out here doing film, and then I also doing what in film. Oh, I was working low-level crew stuff. PA, was, yeah, anything they'd hire you for. Anything they'd hire me for. Okay. I was also writing screenplays and trying to get some traction with that. Did a little bit of editing, um, but it wasn't getting anywhere with you know the higher-level kind of stuff that I was hoping to do. And then I also started getting involved in environmental stuff and got involved with Greenpeace. Oh, and really? Go, yeah, I was all I was all set when, when my diversion came. I was all set to actually be on the Rainbow Warrior. And go off on an anti-whaling boat. No voyage. way! Yeah. So really? I was, I was, and I ended up being. I used to go up to Fort Mason in San Francisco, where the headquarters, the U.S. headquarters were, mm. and I became kind of like the de facto, kind of press officer for them. I was writing press releases and kind of doing that sort of thing, and then getting all geared up for the the voyage when uh, when some other opportunities sort of came my way. Well, <laughs> well, let's talk about what, what 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 were those opportunities? How did you get recruited? By this, well. I had a, we're talking about the fact that I ended up spending 10 years as a CIA officer. Um, what Mostly happened? as a spy, no? Yeah, spy. Yeah, the, un, un, but I mean undercover. Right, yeah, right, undercover right, yeah. operations officer, uh, a.k.a. spy or case officer or operations officer. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah, but I was undercover. I had... Well, uh, I think... Sorry, just like, I think some people assume like some CIA officers are known. Well, it's true. I mean... And some aren't. Yeah. So you were on the... I was in the, what's called the Directorate of Operations. Okay. And I was undercover as the State Department officer was my official cover. Right. Um, and then I, you know, I spent 10 years undercover, the, you know, the whole time I, I spent the 10 years. Um, and tra- I, I served in uh, Eastern Europe, Africa, and then wa- Moscow, which was kind of the centerpiece of it. In like 84 to 86, I was in Moscow, mm. which has kind of turned out to be sort of the climax of the Cold War. A lot of stuff happened when I was there. Um, and then weren't you arrested? And I was arrested. I, I was there for 21 months, and I did a lot of stuff. I was under surveillance the whole time, but managed to go out and. So they knew you were a spy. Yes, or and they suspected at least. No, they knew. By the time I got to there, I had done two previous tours of duty, and I had done a lot of things that had brought me to their attention. Oh, and so by the time I got to Moscow, I was still undercover, but it wasn't fooling the KGB. It was simply. Um, they just kind me. of let you be undercover for no, a while. No, well, no. What it means is like, uh, I mean, in most, in, in many cases, the cover is like, it'll work for, you know, the community. It'll work for other diplomats from other embassies. They won't know. Right. You know, but when you come right down to the security service, in this case, the KGB, they know. And so in my case, like, they were like... Same here, the FBI knows the, yeah. the Russians. Well, the idea, the idea, I mean, when, well, if we talk about Moscow, Moscow was a special situation because it was the KGB. It wasn't just any, you know, any security right. service. It was right. Moscow, it was the KGB. And so yeah. they, we had, and, and also I can talk a little bit more about that than I can about the other ones because that has now been, a number of books have been written, and I have a book coming out that has been approved by CIA, so I kind of know what I what the, they allow me to talk is, about. Is that what uh, Year of the Spy? Year of the Spy. Oh, yeah. cool. Okay. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 So it's not out yet. It's it's going through. The I final. was going to ask you about CIA approval. So it's yeah, all it's, been approved now. It, well, I have an approval 
when you get to the galley proof stage, you have to send it back one more time. So, okay. you know, but I've got the, the basics are proof. So I kind of know. And also there have been, you know, eight or nine books written about that era in Moscow, uh, different aspects of it. And so there's a kind of a, uh, there are things that I know I can talk about. So in Moscow, you know, there were about seven or eight of us who were um, undercover, but inside what we call the station, the CIA enclosure, and we kind of worked in in a, in a place where other CIA people were. But then there were a few. Was that, you were not in the embassy, or in the embassy? Oh, okay. Was hidden but inside just one the embassy. part of the embassy. Right? So, like, you know, I mean, I, officially, I'm supposed to be in the political section, but I would pass through the political section and walk onto the you know right. our place and I through a there. hidden door. Yeah, kind of like that. And then, but then um, there were also a few people who were hidden more deeply than that. Oh, that we would handle. Uh, and who were who were not known to the Soviets? So we had oh, like, like super off the books, yeah, kind of thing. Right. Like that. So there was so a they weren't effort. that no one was covering them up as a State Department official. They believed the KGB didn't know who they were, and so that was very precious, you know, to us because it meant that they weren't getting regular surveillance, and so they did a lot of operational activity because they were not being scrutinized the way we were. Right. But there were certain things that. I had, well, it was a language thing where I had good language and also I could use disguise pretty effectively. There was some theatrical dimension to this, I suppose. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, so I ended up getting to do a lot of stuff in spite of the fact that I was under surveillance all the time, uh, using techniques to kind of disappear from surveillance without them knowing wow. what we were doing. And and I mean, it was kind of like, if you consider the idea that the KGB would follow the four or five K- CIA officers they knew who we were. They were going to follow us all the time. Mm-hmm. But then you've got a couple hundred of Americans there other than that, none of whom are getting followed around all the time. So if you could figure out some scenario where I could temporarily become someone else uh, right, who wasn't interesting to them, then that would get, allow me to get free. So there were like techniques. That's tough, though, when you're 6'5". Yeah. yeah, I know. But I found a guy. I really? Found, yeah, my guy I played basketball with. And... Uh, he was a, uh, a a low-level employee of the embassy, a black guy, six no five, way. my size, and we played basketball against each other. Uh-huh. And so we worked on it and got approvals, and I ended up getting you know a full set of uh, uh, prosthetics that allowed me to look just like him. And then we <laughs> had these various scenarios where we swap identities, and I would you know they would think it was him, but it was me when I would go out. So. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say it's like a little bit of blackface. Ah, uh, well, my God, I never thought of that. You're the first person to ever point that out to me. Yeah, but for in, in a good cause, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 helped by him, of course. Right. No, well, no. I mean, it's actually the best because, I mean, what's the first thing they see about you? The first two things is he's tall and he's white. Yeah. Oh, yeah, anything like so that. So if they you, rule out... Well, one of the part of the technique that you would use would be to use what's called like a visual anchor. So something that would, right. would cause them to easily figure out that you are who they you want them to think you are. So that's a thing, right? If he's black, it, you know, it, it, but also... That's it could the be, first thing they see. But, it's but like you, it's you, not you, Michael you know, because it's this guy. In other scenarios, you know, you would, you would have the person wear a particular hat, like a, a hat that's kind of unique. So you train them to see this person in the hat. Yeah, you train surveillance to see people uh, and to be able to transfer the identity to you by having either clothing or other things that are easy for them to say, "Oh yeah, that's him." That we know that's who it is, so we right. stop scrutinizing him. Right. If it if it wasn't like I mean the psychology of it is that you want them to just glance at the guy and say, "Oh yeah, we know who it is." 
Right. We don't. We're not interested because in you've trained them to notice yeah. that one thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, wow, it's that's a, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot of like. There's a whole lot. There, the, the CIA actually employed m- magicians to teach to help teach some of these like some of the techniques that were used sleight of hand because the whole idea of how you direct someone's attention right is ex- is really what you're doing with surveillance in this kind of a situation. You're directing them to think a certain way in order for you to then do something. But the tricky part here was not only that you would vanish or you would transfer to another person but they you surveillance should not notice that anything has happened they should think continue to think they know where i am right right? because otherwise they can call in reinforcements and bring out you know 150 people looking for me and maybe they're going to find me if they Mm -hmm. do that so the idea is to is to have a scenario where they think they know where he is and they think they know where i am right but in reality and you're you're ostensibly in a meeting in or, the or something or something. Right? I mean, like for you could be like a. I mean, a typical scenario. And again, these are all. I'm, I'm going to emphasize. These are all things that the CIA has allowed to be talked about. So all right, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not um, but it could be like a party. Like for example, the embassy had a dacha, which uh, is a sort of a country estate kind of a thing where you go for like you know weekend activities and stuff. Mm-hmm. So you could have a party there. You go in and out. You know, they, they think you're in the in the in the party at the dacha because both other people are there. But you're actually out. You put your disguise on. You put your disguise on. Leave. They think the other guy left. Then you end up coming back, and you you do it in such a way that you somehow gain. It looks a, normal. You gained like four or five hours to be out and and get something done. Um, when you go out, you have to go through this whole process of making sure that they didn't follow you, and then you have to go through this process of getting rid of the identity that you left because you, you use one identity to leave right to to slip away from surveillance oh so you have to take it all off yeah because you can't I mean a, a, a black guy walking around Moscow is going to attract attention so you have right. to become a Muscovite so right. at some point in the process you once you establish that there's no surveillance you would get rid of all that stuff and then transform into a you know average Ivan Soviet citizen right and then try to maintain that put your giant identity. fur hat on and then yeah, well, you know that's the idea <laughs> to look look normal and to not right. not draw any attention then go through more process to be sure that nothing you haven't attracted any attention and then finally uh, get do to do what you were actually you gotta do. gonna do yeah, yeah. wow so for a half hour meeting you need five hours yeah yeah, it was right. like uh, you know, it was like at least four, four, at least four hours. You know, wow. And I mean, there were a few circumstances where, in a, uh, there was a technique called the jib, Jack in the Box, which has again been written about a lot, where we could do it faster. Where that was like you and I would be in a car, and I'd be in the front seat and the passenger seat, and you'd be the driver, and then you go around a sort of a double corner. I jump out, and then a mannequin pops up, Jack in the Box, mm. that would try to tell surveillance that They're still I'm still on. in the car. Right. Then I would run off and do something real quickly, and then you'd have a route that would bring you back by to pick me up, again, going through kind of a double corner configuration that would leave. Come back, you up, hop in. And I'd hop back in. So that was a kind of a quickie. That was more for like an emergency. Not so much, right. You know, that's to, that's something you couldn't plan for. You got well, well you could plan. You have plans. No, on but the I shelf, mean, but yeah, I mean, yeah. you're not. If like the you, whole disguise thing, yeah, yeah. you need to be quicker than that. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, wow. Yeah. So wait, that actually reminds me, because. That's an old stunt tech. Well, it's a little different, but you know how they would have, uh, uh, they'd have like a stunt guy do a fall out of camera, yeah, and then the actor would stand up. Mm-hmm. That was a big Western thing. Mm-hmm. It just reminded me of that. I don't mm-hmm. know. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting is the, the idea. A lot of people would say to me, like, "How ah, do you get from film to 
to espionage and then back to film. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, espionage is, uh, you know, literally thespionage. I mean, you're acting all the right. time. When you're undercover, you're acting. When you're doing the things that we're talking about, you're acting. You're right. selling a story to an audience, mm-hmm. in this case surveillance, right? Yeah. You're making them understand one thing and, you know, you're, you're, you have to. And so there's a, lot of, there's a lot in common. If you think back to, like, OSS and World War II and all these cool movies where you, you remember, like, the fact that people are playing a role and their lives on the line. Right. They're playing a role. They're playing a role. So I, I, th- I see a lot in similar. And also the other thing I see that's similar is in terms of production, if you look at like what it takes to mount a movie, for example, if you're producing a movie, all the moving parts you got to put together, all the things you got to think about, how you're going to put it all together. And if you also then look at an espionage operation, same thing. Mm-hmm. Stakes are different. Right. right? Uh, and... Of course, forward. Hollywood thinks the stakes are higher for them. But anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, I was I, I was going to leave that to somebody to figure out how they feel about it. But but you know, I mean, it's it, it's very, it, there's a lot of similarity. And so when you see a movie like Argo, for example, like, yeah, you know, uh, Tony Mendez, who was the character played by Ben Affleck, was someone who had trained me in disguise work. He no was, way, really? Yeah, yeah, I know Tony and his wife Jana uh, very well. Uh, his wife Jana, his Tony just died like six months ago, unfortunately. I heard say. about that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they have a book that just came out, and I had been in touch with them because they wanted John had said that we wanted to interview me because there was like a chapter about my some of my stuff, mm. and uh, they were uh, it was right when Tony died, and uh, we never you know John and I have been in touch of course, but we didn't really do the interview. Um, but they have a number of books that they put out the two oh. of them right, mm. and then uh, but Argos really I think the the story. Of I think it was Tony's greatest moment, what he did in 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 Tehran at that time, um, and I think that uh, the Hollywood connection between you know remember the prosthetics and all that they, you know, they, were, they, were, they were so there and there was always like when I was learning my disguise stuff when they were setting me up with disguise and when they were doing the prosthetics they, there was Hollywood people were you know part of the deal really they were the ones that had taught them how to do it yeah so right. and CIA had sort of turned to Hollywood. No, they used they used experts. They used yeah. magicians to to help you yeah. learn sleight of hand, and yeah, yeah. That, I mean, it's smart. Yeah, it's yeah. smart. It's just going to the you know, instead of making it up, go to the person who really knows how to make you know yeah. do makeup or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, most people don't think about that connection, and I've often thought about trying to, you know, in some way be able to maybe write about it or try to come because I really think there's a, a lot in common, and people just don't never see it, never see it that way. Right. Yeah, I, obviously, it, 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 there's a lot of connection, clearly. Um, were, were you ever, when you're running around in somebody else's disguise, I mean, are you, are you very scared, a little scared, not scared at all? I mean, I can't imagine you wouldn't be scared, but you have to have a certain level of fear, do you not, in these? Or is it better well, to... Yeah, it's more like a, um, I mean, th- there's a couple of things. The way it was during the Cold War was mm-hmm. that when we were operating in Moscow, for example, and also anywhere else in Eastern Europe, but especially Moscow, um, they were. Th- what was at risk was that if we got caught or we did something stupid, then our agent that we were trying to meet would get arrested and executed. So the the, the burden on us was more about the life that we might screw up 
than ourselves because in our case we did have diplomatic immunity and we could oh you did yeah yeah so we get arrested i'd get arrested but eventually get released right so you kind of know you know they could do some stuff and they could make life miserable but but and they weren't in the business of killing spies no because they would we there was a sense of there was a kind of a uh a camaraderie would be too 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 but there was a kind of a sense of professional um a little bit of honor among thieves. A little bit, you know, and so they were like, you know, and, and so like a big part of what I would have to, I would do is to not, I would try very hard to not anger my surveillance. I would try to treat them with respect. And that meant not doing stupid things when I'm in the car, not, you know, getting, going off a side street or leading them on a marriage Taking chase. a corner really fast. Yeah, and I'm trying I, you know, to I always them, would, right. you know, try to like, you know, stay in my lane, not speed. Right, always stop at the yellow. Yeah, have have right. logical, yeah, don't don't zip through a thing, a, a traffic sign or something like that. And also, um, like if I did, because you, you would have, and you might get lost. If I got lost, I would pull over and I would pull up a map in front of my face and I'd give them time to get situated so that they, you know, and they, they go, he's clearly lost. He's lost and he's selling us that he's lost. And you know, we have time to kind of get repositioned. And even though they might be a little bit irritated, they might even realize that I'm doing it for their benefit. But right. the whole idea was to try and keep them, you know, happy. And, and you don't want to get right. lost. I'm not trying to make, take you on a wild goose chase. Right. I'm, I'm actually lost right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you sort of do that. You're you speaking know. to them. And, and also you're telling them a story. Like, for example, I, would, I was really into Russian culture. Uh-huh. I would go to theater. I would go to music concerts. And I would talk to the walls at home about how much I loved this or that music or this or that. You know, and talk, you know meaning, meaning to say there was kind of a... Um, well, the implication there, obviously, you, you're being recorded at all times. Yes. Right? And, okay. and, and the thing is that they, you know, I wanted them to think of me as somebody who was respectful of their culture and who was not, uh, you know, being right. a dick about it, right? Right. And, uh, and, and Not all, some big, loud, asshole American. And, but all of that is right. in the service of trying to make them relax a little bit because if they relax, you know, from right. their point of view, their challenge is, yeah, they've got a lot more people than we do. They've got teams on us 24-7, but we choose the moment of action. They've right. got to watch us 365 days a year. While you sit back and... You know, right. and, and we, we select the moment where we're going to stick it to them. So for... 300 of those days or 320 of those days nothing's really happening and then for those other days they have to know when and they don't know when so that was you know by by trying to make them relax that was the technique that i used not everybody had the same idea but that was i think what i'm describing was what the the instructors would teach us Mm. but when you get over there sometimes you get into more of a competitive thing or some people are more aggressive or sometimes they'll do something to piss you off sure and then it would be that but i never had that happen and i imagine it's a it's it's not a great feeling to know that every single thing you do and say all day every day is recorded and watched by human beings, you know? Um, you, get, you get used to it, but it's very intense. Of course. It's a performance. You're well, on stage the whole time. Right, even even alone in your apartment. Yeah. Um, but the, the question arises for me, I mean, just your personal life, like, you know, how do you have a girlfriend or... or well, you, you, I mean, for example, uh, I was married. Okay. But we pretty soon decided that you know we'd give them the best sex show we could and just you know let it go as far as the thing that we're really if impacted is you don't want to display any anger or have any arguments any, any right any, any, you don't want to give them an in to you don't want them to in other words i mean uh, the solution as far as like your you know it was kind of like either with the sex thing you're either going to be intimidated by it or you're going to kind of turn it into a game but as far as like letting them see vulnerabilities 
which would be like, oh, he's got a bad marriage or he's got a, you know, this kind of a thing. And you're under so much pressure. You don't want to give them a sliver to put a wedge in. So, you know, you basically learn to control. And you don't, your car's not safe. You can't talk in the car. Right. The only place you could possibly talk would be out walking in a park. And even there, if they want to, they can have techniques that allow them to hear you. Um, What about the embassy? The embassy in the station itself, which was like a box the size of like half of a construction trailer. Oh. There was a box inside a box inside a box kind of a thing where we were, we worked and there were like eight of us inside there and it was, you know, you could talk in there. You would, the most, the like crazy most sensitive things you wouldn't even talk to, but you could generally talk inside there because it had all kinds of technology to make sure that it was, you couldn't, there wasn't like any jamming device. stuff yeah, or whatever, jamming right? And all that. Well, so if you wouldn't even talk about the, the crazy stuff, how did you convey stuff to each other? You write it? No, yeah, but you would you would do like for example, there were you weren't allowed to have typewriters in there because they there had been a thing where the Soviets had been able to, the State Department had been using IBM Selectric typewriters, which had that little ball, yeah, thinking around, and they figured out how to read from the sound which letter was being hit, and so they were able to then translate what was going on to those typewriters. Oh my God! So when that was discovered, then the station determined to have no type, not even manual typewriters. And so all everything was a yellow pad, was all we had. No computers, no typewriters. Um, so that was kind of the, the, it was a very, you know, kind of, did not trust the technology. Then as far as talking was concerned, you'd be things like you would never use an agent's true name. You would be careful about not, not describing things in a way that would, but you could still, because it was really, it was swept every day for bugs it was right we were 98 percent certain right. that they were not inside our enclosure so just an abundance of caution but in an abundance of caution when something was you know particularly sensitive you'd write it down you know but it was like you got used to i mean I, the thing that i was going to say is that you it's a two-year assignment every three months or four months you'd leave and go out to helsinki which was the closest place to get out and have a Long oh, so you get a little R and R kind of get a little R and R, and then in the middle of the assignment, you get a three week R and R to go off to some beach somewhere and chill. Mm. And so we, I ended up going to the Canary Islands and an island called Fuerteventura, and three weeks on the beach. I've never had a vacation like that before or since. <laughs> I mean, it was before faxes, cell phones, anything like that. Yeah. So we went there and we landed and did not have one piece of communication with the outside world for three weeks. And I, I felt I never had. I mean, I discover what it was like to be a European and have a one-month vacation. <laughs> you know, right. it's like, I just, I was really like, wow, it was great. And I dreamed of doing it again, but never have. So we, that was it. So those are the ways you kind of coped with the, the stress. Right. You know, and uh, and then, you know, drinking. <laughs> I mean, it was like a, it was like a, uh, a, a intense place. Your part, your camaraderie, you know, to this day, 30, whatever it is, years later, um, Every person in that station and I are in touch and friends. Really? And yeah, it was a bonding experience. Of You talk about our bonding that we have in film. It was like that and maybe even a little more intense because of two years and also being at the center of, you know, something you felt was really important. Yeah, yeah. the Cold War, no? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so how did you... How did you end up getting arrested? So I had... Uh, Wait, did you only get arrested once? Yeah. Okay. Right, All right. So... I was one of the cases that I was responsible for was the KGB major whose name we eventually learned I didn't know at the time but his name was Sergei Vorontsov and Vorontsov had volunteered just before I got to Moscow and um, 
and I got to sign the case. So and he had gone to someone and said he had gone up to it. He had gone up to a, a State Department officer's car and dropped a package into the State Department and CIA people had taken on a habit of leaving their window rolled down slightly in their cars. Really? And sometimes Soviet citizens would come up and drop a parcel through the window. Shit. So he did that. And so he had delivered a bunch of top secret. So that's how to get your first yes. line of communication. Right. And, yeah. Right. And, and he okay. basically said, yeah, I have everything from Pinkovsky to Ogorodnik, two of the biggest cases. And he, he gave a top secret. Uh, Wait, but what, what, Kate? What? Pinkovsky was the, was the first really, really big espionage case, a, a GRU, a Soviet military intelligence major who provided, among other things, the intelligence that led to our discovery of the Russian missiles in Cuba. In 1963. Oh, shit. Okay. And then, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then Algorodnik was a very high level uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs officer in 1977 that provided crucial intelligence on the SALT and SALT II uh, strategic arms limitation mm. treaty negotiations. So these were like two kind of iconic. Uh, everybody knew about this. Everybody knew. So he says, "I'm going to tell you everything from those, you know, one to the other." And then here's my bona fides, which we would call, which was like, you know, top secret documents. And then he said he gave instructions about how. So he dropped some documents just to prove to prove he was who he said he was. Yeah. And right. so then, then uh, they send out an officer to meet with him. That officer goes out to meet with him, and they chose somebody who was in the final weeks of his tour of duty. So in case it was a, a trap, uh, he would already be on his way out of the country. So he had the meeting, and the case, you know, it, 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 they had a meeting, and it didn't go that well. They didn't record it. One of the reasons they didn't record the meeting was because they didn't want the guy who met him to have spy gear on him. But as a result, they didn't – it came back, and they were expecting a document dump from this from this like KGB right officer, away. and he didn't get it. So by the time I got assigned the case, and it was like, well, we're not totally sure about this guy, you know. And uh, but we think he's someone you know he's shown he has the access and everything. So I was handling this this case when I was there, and so I eventually met him, mm-hmm. and I went to the meeting, first meeting. How it, did you go about meeting him? It was the same kind of thing. You I had just, a phone number. No, he had a <laughs> well, yeah, actually, what he did his 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 system of communication was that on a once a month, he would go at night to KGB headquarters to an office that he had access to that was not his office and had a direct phone number. Mm. And then we were, we had a 10-minute window during which we could call that number. He would answer it, and we would exchange what's called a parole. So we would exchange a couple, you know, a, you know, a, a, a simple exchange. Like code words. Code words that would trigger a meeting an hour later. Right. Oh, okay. Okay. And so we would... So there was the. Yeah, I, Can I guess you tell you, me what your code words were? I can't remember. I tell oh, okay. I can't. I can't. But it, it wasn't like code words. It was like a. It's like, like oh, the, ra- the rain in Spain, and he could say, oh, you know, I mean, there'd be an answer. But it was some some sense sentence. I know his name was Stas. He called not his real name, but the name we wanted to use. And so we would ask for Stas, and he would say he would have some answer about Stas that would either tell me because if he answered it all, it meant that he was there. Of normally, there wouldn't be anybody there. Right. So if he answered it all, he would say Stas isn't available try him tomorrow or something like that but that would then tell us that meant i can't no no he wouldn't answer if he if he wasn't going to meet he wouldn't be there ah i see so as long as he was there so he so his code was stas isn't available yeah, yeah. but that means meet me at the bar yeah, and as long minutes. as i'm there and i answer it and i respond to the question about stas because if, if somebody else who didn't know who stas was 
in other words, we wanted to know that it was actually him, of not course, somebody else. Sure. But so and then and then it would be like that would trigger a meeting like an hour later. So and I guess it wasn't every month. It was like every three months that he would be there. Okay, but but question for you: You said they knew like the minute you got to the country that you were sure. So I would have to escape from surveillance in order to go out and make that call. So this is you putting on your disguise or using some other technique. Another technique was what we called it a van, a van escape, where I would there'd be like a party, and uh-huh. somehow I would get loaded into a van that was delivering people to and from the party and stuff, and they would think I'm in the party. Uh, but in reality, I'm in a, I'm in like a, uh, a compartment in the back of the van, mm. and then somehow, as this van is running around picking people up or doing whatever, you get dropped off. I jump out and do my thing, and then later on, it comes back and gets me. I go back to the party, you know, like that. So that was how I, that was the technique for this. Is it really okay? Yeah, yeah. Which so, is that what you always used? No, we didn't always. We had to try different things. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But there were, but, but the concept was. Uh, you know, the overall concept was to say, okay, surveillance, I'm here right, right, right. at this party. Look at Michael, here, he just went yeah, in. Yeah, right. You know where Michael is. Right. Now you don't have to worry about Michael. Now chill. Yeah. Right. And then meanwhile, Michael's not there, and Michael's off doing something for three or four or five of hours. Of course, right. And then at the end of the night, Michael emerges from wherever you thought he was and goes home. You know, so it was like that. So, right. um, so I had to do that, make the call, then he would come to the meeting. So this guy, what we discovered the first time I met him, was that he didn't want to give us documents. He did. The, he gave documents in the opening salvo to prove his bona fides. But what he had tried to tell the other guy, whose Russian wasn't great, and he was really, this guy was very hard to understand. I mean, I had, I had high-level Russian, and I had to struggle because he spoke of like a street street vernacular. He's oh, like, really? <clears throat> you ever see the movie uh, French Connection? Yes. Do you remember the character played by Gene Hackman, Popeye Doyle? Yes. He was like that. He was like a very kind of a... uh, Kind of a tough guy. Tough guy, street smart, you know, kind of a thing. And he was a counterintelligence officer who um, he said... And and he knew how people got caught because he was in counterintelligence. Because he got... And they got caught. They got caught by having spy gear from us and, you know, stuff like that. So he said, when I finally got to meet him, he said, no, no, no. He says, I... Here's how it works. Once every three months, you can come out and you can ask me any questions you want. Mm-hmm. But I'm not taking anything from you except money. And I'm not doing anything except talking to you. I'm so not he ever. told you no more documents. No more documents. So he gave you just a couple to know that he had access. Right. And, and the then first, everything else was from up here. And, and the thing that was very lucky for me was when I went to meet him that first time, I had, you know, the, you, we were planning to hand him a list of questions. Uh-huh. About 65 or 70 questions. Yep. That's how you get your know, intelligence requirements, they're called. And so I was like, uh, I, I knew that I was going to hand him those questions and that we wouldn't get answers for three months. Except he's not going to take that. Well, yeah. And so, but meanwhile, right. so me, I mean, you know, the CIA is a very kind of high achiever kind of organization. And you're trying to like really be what, you know, you're trying to be like, one step ahead of whatever's going on. So I'm sitting there thinking, well, I'm going to be a smart guy. I'm going to memorize these questions, mm-hmm. and I'm going to try to ask him a few of them mm-hmm. at the meeting, which is only supposed to last about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. But I could ask a few questions, get his answers, and then the rest of the questions would come later. So when it, when I got to the meeting and he said, no, 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 I'm not taking any questions from you. Go ahead, ask me whatever questions you want. Right. I mean, somewhat miraculously and as a stroke of luck, I had memorized all the questions. So instead all of them. Of, yeah. So instead of having like a 15-minute meeting, we had a two-hour meeting walking on the streets 
and I ask all the questions. And it was being tape recorded. So I, you know, all the answers were were were. were oh, captured. so you just you just walked? We walked. We 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 met. We did what you would do is you'd have like an initial initial point of contact. Sure, of course. And then you just go off in Moscow. The way Moscow uh, is designed is that you have all these big apartment buildings that look like almost a block long, and then you go through an archway into an interior courtyard. Mm. And then the interior courtyard from one building kind of connects to another building. So you can just walk So once you those. get back in there, you can kind of wander around in the back courtyard. And you're not and out on the street. No. But, I mean, you know, we, you know, I'm all dressed up to look like a Russian, and we're just walking. And, you know, we might stop at a children's, a lot of, you know, there's parks and places where you can sit and talk. And people are out. I mean, there are people. Of course, that's part of my problem is I'm making sure none of the people that are around are surveillance, or I want to want to be sure of that. Of course. But anyway, so this And guy, he'd be watching for that, too. Yeah. Right. So this is uh, uh, this agent. Then, what ends up happening is uh, he disappears for a while, and he misses a few meetings. Mm. And this is at a time when, in 1985, we we began to suffer setbacks. So, in June of '85, which what setbacks? Um, I'll tell you. Like, oh, okay. There was an agent, one like the biggest agent that the CIA had anywhere in the world, most important agent. <clears throat> was a guy named uh, Adolf Tolkachev. Tolkachev was a was a uh, an engineer working in a top secret uh, engineering plant that designed look down, shoot down radar, and all of the other avionics for the MiG fighters and things like that. This guy had been providing high level, the highest level intelligence for six years, maybe seven years by this time and was considered to be, well, there's a book out called The Billion Dollar Spy wow. about him. Uh, he's alleged to have saved the United States more than a billion dollars in countermeasures that we were able to develop as a result of the intelligence that he provided. And so he was like the, the, the gold standard. And he had been, it was, it was kind of like him and then everybody else as far as right. agents were concerned. Right. So in June of 1985, one of our officers went out to meet him and our officer got arrested, and we learned that he had been arrested. And that was a big, devastating blow. So this is like halfway through my tour of duty. I went out in the summer of 84. Everything was going great uh, until June 13th, 1985. Mm. That's when we discovered that Tolkachev had been arrested, and our officer got arrested and expelled from the country. Then... So that was the beginning. Did, of, did they do any kind of trade with him or anything? Or they just they tried him? to, but by the time we tried to do the trade, they had already executed him. Oh, Reagan shit. Reagan tried to get a trade, but it was too late. Like under the like very quietly. He mentioned it in a in a uh, he brought it up in a summit meeting with Gorbachev in eighty seven, and that was too late. They had already uh, tried him and executed him. Yeah, but hmm. so so this was. Why, sorry, since yeah. we're sorry about that. Why did why does why did he do it? And maybe broader, like why do they do it? Well, they do for it for money, right? Different reasons. The okay. guy that I, the guy I'm telling you about, yeah, the the one that I was meeting, he was more venal. He was more about money. He okay. had also been he had been demoted because ah. he used some operational funds that he shouldn't have used. Mm. He did some drinking in a safe house, and as a result, he was. He was disciplined, and he was demoted, and he got really pissed off about it, and that led him to— so it was to, almost revenge. Yeah, revenge is often come. For Tolkachev, he was a true dissident, and he initially thought 
that he would pursue a dissident path, meaning help distribute, you know, anti-Soviet propaganda, mm. uh, help support their refusing, things like that. And then he realized he couldn't do that because he had a top secret clearance working in a... He's just going to end up in jail super yeah, fast. And then he realized that the way that he could do it was to become a spy. Mm. And so he was truly principled. He was uh, someone who was motivated by ideology. And he, and he, you know, he was a heroic. He was considered really heroic. Right. Um, <clears throat> was there an end game for him? I mean, for any spies to like... At a certain point, does well with him. They were trying. The, the, C, the CIA wanted to exfiltrate him, get him out, and he he refused because his family wouldn't. Go. He knew his wife and son would not go. Instant. And so right. he just said he because there was a time when there were some times when he, we knew he was under scrutiny and he was in some danger, and um, because he was very aggressive in collecting the information that he did and taking photographs and getting access to documents that he probably didn't have access to. And there so was, it's kind of inevitable he's going to get caught. Something like that, right? Right. But so he was uh, – but when he got arrested, that was the beginning then of a series of calamities that began to befall us, and we didn't know what was happening. Mm. So um, Tolkachev happened in, 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 in June. Uh, a month before that, there had been an agent – uh, in in Athens, who we weren't really working with, his name was Sergei Bolkan. He was a uh, a, K, a GRU Soviet military intelligence colonel, mm. and he was working with Athens Station. And we only knew about him a little bit because he was possibly coming back to Moscow, and we were preparing to maybe handle handle him in Moscow. And in May, he learned suddenly he was recalled back to Moscow. And they told him he needed to come because his son, who was in a military academy, had fallen and hurt himself. But he had just spoken to his son the day before, and his son was fine. And so he felt like it was a trap mm. to lure him back to arrest him. And so he ended up defecting to the U.S. And so that was maybe the beginning. So, you know, we, we didn't, the dots weren't being connected. Right. But in May of 85, you have that happen. Then in June, Tolkachev happens. Then in July, something else happened. And then in through the fall, two or three more things happened. None of them seemed to be connected. We, of course, were worried that when Tolkachev, for example, when Paul got arrested, we worried that, oh, something we did caused it. We were worried that an officer meeting Tolkachev previously had brought surveillance to the meeting. They put Tolkachev under surveillance. That's the kind of thing you worry about. That's what I would worry about. Mike, you know, you always like would feel like, oh, it's something we did. Mm -hmm. So as the year progresses and you go through the fall of 1985, more agents are getting rolled up, and we don't know why. More Soviet agents. Did you assume that there was somebody, a, a double agent kind of thing? or? Well, here's what happened. In, in August of 1985, so you know, the timeline we're talking about is June the 1st, Tolkachev gets arrested. Sure, yeah. A little something happens in July. There's a little something that happened in May. But the big thing is Tolkachev. In August, we come into work one day, and we get a message that a KGB general has defected in Rome. His name, um, well, you're going to get my name going, Yurchenko. Okay, Yurchenko, Yurchenko was a, a KGB general, the highest level defector ever. 
And in the first hour of his debrief, he told the debriefer in Rome that the KGB had an asset named, codenamed Mr. Robert, who had been a CIA officer assigned to go to Moscow, who had been fired just weeks before he was going to Moscow. Mm. And that this CIA officer who had been fired weeks before going to Moscow had given them the information on Tolkachev and other things. We immediately recognized that this guy was Ed Howard. Ed Howard was a CIA officer who I shared an office with, just like you and I are sitting here right now. Oh, shit. As he was weeks away from going to Moscow in the summer of 1983. So wait, he was giving shit up before his... So he was, he was scheduled to go to Moscow in the summer of 83. Before you go to Moscow, you read the cases that you're going to handle. You learn the operations. So he was, we were both on the Soviet desk at CIA headquarters, and he was fully read in. He was ready to go when they fired him. They fired him over, uh, he couldn't pass his polygraph. He did a, they did a reinvestigation polygraph. They discovered that he had, he had drug and alcohol problems that he oh. had not disclosed, and that he had done a, an incident of petty theft on an airplane where he stole money from his seatmate. And he confessed to it in the polygraph, and then they put all these things together, and he said, you know what? We're firing you, which is one of the dumbest things CIA ever did. Here, this guy had his head filled with the dark, deepest secrets, right? Yeah. And they fire him. So, they should have just kept him in the U.S., yeah, right, but, at least. Yeah, and just giving him some nonsensitive, you know, thing. So, right. so Howard had, sorry, what I had known was, you know, Howard had disappeared and been fired. I knew that. Um, did you but, like him? Did you? You know, we were like, his wife and my wife were having their first baby about three weeks apart. So we kind of bonded on the daddy. Yeah, had some common the things going thing on, like right? That, you know, um, he was a year or two older than I was, but it was his first tour. And it's going to be my second or third, actually. So I was a little more experienced than he was, but he was a little older than I was. You know, I, I mean, I, I used to say, you know, I used to think about it a lot because when this happened, I thought, wow, did I ever see anything? I had no, you know, I did. but, you know, we just were like, okay. You know, he was doing his thing. I was doing my thing. We did not really bond. But we were in the room for about maybe two months together, you know, every day, just the two of us. Mm. Um, and uh, so I got, you know, I had to do a lot of, uh, they wanted to know how much he knew, you know, how many cases he knew. Because once they found out that he had defected, so now he's still, by the way, when this is all happening in August of 85, when we hear this, he's living in New Mexico, right? Working for the New Mexico State Legislature. And, and now we know he's a Soviet agent. So now the FBI mounts, but they, you know, just because we know he's an agent because Yurchenko says so, that doesn't really give the FBI a case. They can't convict they him. They can't on that. arrest him. No, right. So they have to begin there. So the FBI begins to. Well, but now it becomes important too because then they can find out maybe, hopefully, what he's telling them, right? Well, they what he's telling them. Well, w w immediately when we knew that Ed was in touch with them, we conducted a complete. You know, analysis of everything he could have possibly known. Oh, and, and then his, you have to basically like uh, put every operation that he could have possibly known about on ice, and meaning to say you stop contacting. You know, and w a big thing was we wanted to warn you know some agents, of and course. there was a whole big debate between headquarters and the field about How whether we could do that. that. Yeah, right. And then meanwhile, the FBI is mounting their investigation of Ed, and uh, they have him under surveillance. In, in New Mexico, and they're you know they're doing their investigation, and then 
and we on our side are all of a sudden realizing that this agent, this agent, we can't meet him because he would have, he might have known about right. it. Right. So then it goes on from August until September. Howard sees the surveillance. Right. Remember, he's had all the training that I had to go to Moscow. Right. And the FBI isn't used to following spies. There was probably. a whole thing that really happened. There was one unit in the FBI called the SSV, Special Surveillance uh, Unit, that knew about us and how they worked with us in training. Mm. And they tried, a CIA officer named Jack Platt tried to get that unit sent to New Mexico to surveil this guy and it didn't happen. Mm. So as a result, they did bring other SSB unit people from other places like Los Angeles and stuff like that. But these people hadn't worked against CIA and they didn't know our techniques mm. as well as the ones from Washington did. So they go and they have them under surveillance. He spots the surveillance, realizes what's happening. And so he mounts an escape and he uses the jib, the thing I told you about, jib where you really? jump jack in the box. He rigs up a jack in the box, goes out to dinner with his wife. She's driving home. He jumps out of the car when they go around a corner. She pops up the dummy. She drives home, goes into the into the garage, closes the door. And they're home. They're home Saturday night, right? So Saturday night at 7 o'clock, they're home. Doors are locked. I mean, the, the gate is closed. Meanwhile, he's off headed for the airport, you know? He makes it all the way across the border into Russia before they even know he's gone. Oh, He flies shit. to Helsinki. He goes to the Russian embassy in Helsinki. They that bring couldn't happen today because everything's computerized. Yeah, yeah, but, but at yeah. the time, anyway, so, so he, he made, got into Russia. He made it into Russia, and he became the first ever CIA defector to defect to Russia. Fuck. And this was in 1985. So now we're in 85, right? So this is the book. Remember my book, uh, The Year of the Spy. It's 1985 when all these things are happening. Right. So now we know that he did it, but now we're looking at these other cases, and he didn't know about some of them. Mm. Meanwhile, in October, in September, there's something that happens. In October, there's something that happens. And so there's like five things that have gone wrong, and he only knew about two of them. So you know there's something else going on, and we don't know what. Right. And that goes on. And then, meanwhile, my agent... Did they ever get that guy, by the way? Ed? Ed Howard? No, he ended up dying in 2002. He, he stayed as a, as a defector in Russia lived there until 2002, then died under somewhat mysterious circumstances, <laughs> um, broken neck from a fall. Yeah. I mean, there's some theory that something other than a fall happened, but he also was a, he was a drinker. I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of investigations hard done to say, on both right? sides. Hard to say, hard yeah. to say. I mean, you know. But did his wife and, did they ever get? His wife was never, um, his wife cooperated. And she never was charged with anything, even though she assisted him in his in his escape. She made it possible. Um, but she cooperated, and she never got charged. She was a very nice lady. People, I mean, she she was in a tough situation. And yeah, she was in love with them, and yeah. she got hoodwinked. Yeah, and they remained. I mean, they tried to hold their marriage together for a while. She would go visit him over there, you know, but she never lived there. His son is alive today. His son's, you know, 40 years old today. I mean, yeah. how did... Okay, but... They never tried to. Well, what do they need him back for? He doesn't know anything else. No, I he mean, he, told was, he, he was afraid. It. He was afraid. Oh, CIA, you mean? Or well, no, 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 no. I mean, anybody. We don't need. We, we don't need him back. He's not a. He's not an asset. Oh, he was. Listen, he was very much afraid that we were going to try to get him back. That we were going to drag him back to justice. Right. And there was a time when the FBI would love to have gotten him. He of went course. off and lived in Sweden for a little while, and then, and then he came back to Russia because he he felt like the FBI was closing in on him. 
Wouldn't the Swedes have extradited him? There was some. I can't remember that part of the story. But, mm, you know, okay. But but I know that he, um, you know, he 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 was wanted, and he's a big fugitive. He's the FBI most wanted, you know, kind of a thing. But what are you going to do in Moscow? We're not going to go. I mean, this was the thing where he thought somebody would drug him, somebody would come get, you know, we were, and he demanded security. I mean, honestly, God, I was there. We were the ones that would have done that if that had been. And on there was the no, no no interest no, in doing no, it. No, no, right? No, no, no. So, but meanwhile, did you ever see him in in Russia? one person did? Bill Norval, our deputy, uh-huh. actually saw him one time. Wow, I never did. Um, <laughs> did he? They didn't communicate. No, they just passed on the street, and it was just kind of weird, you know. Bill thought maybe that they were showing him to him for a reason, but yeah, you know. It's just, oh, really? But I don't know. But so, but as that year goes on, and I'll get to the end of this because it's a long, it's a shaggy dog story. But you asking about what happened? How did I get arrested? Right? Yeah. So this, you know, the timeline we're talking about is no. D- take your time June, and tell me. Yeah. June eighty five. Yeah. June eighty five uh, was when the first thing goes wrong. Things start going wrong through the fall. Right. And then my agent disappears and stops appearing for meetings. There's a lot of interest in my agent because he's counterintelligence, second chief directorate, and that means that he could possibly give us the answers to what's going wrong that we can't right. figure out otherwise. Right. So there's a lot of interest, even though there's a lot of concern that maybe something has happened to him. Right. So, and how much money were you paying him? He was not paid. He was paid like, well, first time I met twenty five thousand rubles, which would be like the equivalent of about two years' salary. Okay. So pretty good, but not like what millions of dollars. What was that in US yeah, at the time? About a dollar per ruble. Uh, maybe it was like $35,000. It was like, one, oh, really? But see, oh. I mean, the, Tolkachev got paid a lot more over the years, and this guy would have eventually gotten paid a lot more. But see, one of the reasons we don't give him more money was because we could tell he was going to spend it. And if you spend it, and you don't have an explanation for how you're spending it. Right. So, you know, we were And also, you don't him. want him to give him a reason to shut up. Right. Well, that too. If you give yeah. him a million bucks, he might just <laughs> yeah, hit the yeah, road. Yeah, yeah, So, you know, but this guy, so we're, there's a concerted effort to get back in touch with him. So we, I'm going out, you know, every three months trying to call him out to a meeting, and he's not coming. So I finally we get to March of 86. Um... And I go out to meet him. And when I get to the meeting, so I go through this whole thing with the... Wait, so you called him? Yeah, called him. He okay. answered. He answered oh, the got call. it. And then when I get to the meeting, I have to imagine, this guy, when I knew him, the previous meetings, he had kind of curly hair, a little bit long, kind of a Stalin mustache, okay. kind of a, a burly, kind of very swaggery kind of style. Okay. Now... I see him, and he's standing in the, the meeting place is an archway leading back into one of these these courtyards. Mm-hmm. And I've done this whole complicated surveillance detection maneuver, the kind of thing I was telling you about. Right. You know, and I've, I've fortunately, the, uh, the prosthetics and everything, I didn't bring them. You know, I ditched them somewhere to come back and get them later. So if I do get caught, they won't get that because that would be propaganda value if they had the, the, yeah, the mask right, and all right, that. Right. So I've done it, I've, and I've done everything I can do to see if there's an ambush waiting for me. I've gone into, I've like 45 minutes before the meeting, I went into the courtyard, I went in and out of buildings, changed my appearance a couple of times, looked everywhere I could to see if there was anything that would indicate that there was an Because when they, when they snap a trap, there's a lot of stuff involved. It's not like two two police officers come get you. Are you going to see a bunch of them hanging around? Kind well, of you're, you, you, I didn't. Right. And then finally I found a bench there was like a 200 meters, no, maybe 150 meters away that had eye line of sight to the, and I watched for like the last 15 minutes and I saw him and he's there. So I go, okay, I'm going to go ahead and approach. So I go over and I walk up 
And I get to within, you know, it's kind of dark. It's 945 at night. And, uh, but once I get within about 15 feet of him, the mustache is gone. The hair is kind of, he's under a skull cap. I can't really see the hair, but he's lost 20, 30 pounds. He's been in prison. And he looks, and I start walking over to him and he looks at me and he can't even talk. He, he starts trying to speak and he's stuttering. This is the guy that was so swagger and all that right. kind of stuff. And he sees me coming. And he kind of, you know, and I go, oh, okay. And there's nothing to do. There's no point of running. No. And all of, a sudden, all of a sudden, there's 50 guys. Vehicles are pulling up. Lights are coming on. Cameras, all this stuff. Right. You can see it on YouTube. My arrest is... Really? Uh, yeah. If you, if you go on YouTube and go, I think Google, CIA spy arrested in Moscow. Uh, right. You can see the... Uh, oh, you just asked my phone. There's a video. There's a video. There's a video. Uh, some some Soviet documentary in the late 80s and that little clip is there and has me being interrogated and stuff. So the arrest happened, right? Right. And um, so you had how long? You had another three or four months left? Yeah, yeah. I'd been there 21 months. And, uh, you know, so I got arrested and and I didn't, it was just overnight. And then, you know, they, I got to go back to my, uh, back home and two two days later I had to leave to go back, you know, to America. Um, But the arrest was... uh, you know, it was, you know, they, they hit you with a whole bunch of people. In there, literally like maybe 30 or 40 people. And and uh, make a big deal for propaganda, you know, for course, and stuff. right. And, uh, but the interesting thing was, it was the only case, and to this day, I believe it's the only case where they actually used, they had, in other cases where they have an agent who's been arrested, mm-hmm. they use like a body double to try to draw us out. Like, for example, Tolkachev. We go back to that one. In that particular case, when they arrested our officer in June of 1985, they had a body double who looked like Tolkachev appear at the site to help make sure our officer came forward. Right. They had also done the same thing with Olga Rudnick in 1977. But in my case, they used a real guy. And, you know, it was like the first time, but he was an intelligence officer himself. And, right. uh, and they, you know, he agreed to participate in the in the uh for maybe a little bit well of leniency. He, he was well he was trying to help his his wife he had a wife and daughter right and it was going to make things better for them hoping that they'd treat them better yeah and did, did they did they execute him or they executed him yeah how much longer like how long did six months know? later Jesus. and they clearly had him in prison already yeah they, they had him in, well i le- later in my research for the book i you know i kind of read all of the soviet accounts all of the memoirs interviewed some of the kgb officers and so I learned a whole lot about his story. He was arrested in January. So he'd been in prison some, from January until March. He had refused initially to cooperate. They had sweated him for about a month. And then sometime in February, he began to cooperate. And they so, probably started threatening his wife and kid, right? Yeah. Well, and, and he, I think, came to realize that he's not going to get out of it. There's no way. I think initially he thought maybe he could because he hadn't taken spy gear. They didn't have the evidence, you know, as much evidence. Right. Eventually he. How did he get caught? Be, oh well, now you're getting to the the, the big the punchline. Well, because right? there's still a guy, there's still there's somebody out there leaking, right? Yeah. So what right. happened? So I, but, but telling it for just for a moment. Yeah. For me, it was like, oh man, did I get this guy killed? I mean, you know, I'm thinking, right? Of course. I've been meeting him. You know, anytime you go out to do something in Moscow, you're doing like escaping from surveillance well you think you escaped did you really 
course. Right? You can never know for and, sure. And then when you go, when you only you, know when you're caught, right? And when, and when you, and yeah, and when you get to the meeting site, you know, there's somebody back in the courtyard somewhere that looks a little suspicious. What are you going to do? Are you going? I've spent four hours making sure I didn't bring surveillance. Now I see somebody who looks like he could be surveillance. Do I abort, mm-hmm. or do I go forward with the meeting? Right. You know, we we talk talk about seeing ghosts. As you right. get closer to doing it, you're seeing ghosts. You're seeing stuff, and you that looks suspicious. I don't know. And some people would abort. I mean, that would be like, you know, right. I'm not going to do it. It's like to a to a man with a hammer, everything's right. a nail, kind yeah. of right. Yeah. yeah. So then, what yeah. happens is, you now I believe the the arrest has happened, and I'm wondering, did I do this? Is it my, you know, is it on me? I where don't think I, it is. Where did I screw up, or yeah. where did he screw yeah, up? You right? worry about that. So sure, you know, but also I had had a training exercise in Washington before I went out that was really helpful to me during the arrest. And that was, they had the FBI arrest us in training. Mm. And the FBI was rougher than the KGB. The FBI was really nasty. Really? That was with my wife. Why, because they assumed the KGB would be? I think because it, it was fun. Oh. <laughs> you know, they get to take a CIA guy and, you know, you know give him uh, a hard time, right? So right. They, I was in the, in the training exercise. You don't know this is coming. They kept it a big, big secret that somewhere during the training they would arrest us. We didn't know this. So they snatch you up off the street. So we're doing a st- I'm going around to pick up a dead drop. I'm coming around a corner, down some steps, and I'm supposed to pick up a, a milk carton mm-hmm. that is going to have some secret message in it for me in, in the exercise, right? So I've done my whole thing with surveillance, and I've got a little gap where they're not going to see me, and I'm supposed to grab this thing, right? So as I come around the corner, it's not a milk carton. It's an orange juice carton. What are you going to do, Right. It's there where it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be on the ground, and it's actually up. It's right where it's supposed to be, but instead of being on the ground, it's slightly on the, elevated. Slightly elevated, and it's orange juice instead of milk. You got three seconds to decide: you're going to pick it up, and you're or supposed not. to walk by, right? You're supposed to walk by and pick it up. No, 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 no. But but when you notice it's different, you're. I mean, it's, no, you have to decide: is it is it possible that because if the agent left, it's incriminating information on the agent. You can't just leave it there. Oh, right. And at the same time, it's not exactly perfectly what it's supposed to be. But then agents are human beings. Right. And, you know, so what happened is he picked up the, uh, I picked it up. And immediately 20 FBI agents burst out and grabbed me and throw me to the ground, throw my wife to the ground, put me in one car, put her in another car. And, oh, and, shit. And, and then put, my, put his face down on the floorboard of the car and drive us off somewhere. You know, and and they and they and they well, they get us into some place and start interrogating us, and they say it's a drug bust. That this is a drug deal. That you know, and we're no, you know, and they open up the package, and there's not like a little espionage stuff in there. There's white powder in there, <laughs> and they're trying to make us believe that it's a real bust that you've somehow stumbled into. Well, did you ever think it was real? No, I, I was like. I thought maybe ten percent, maybe you too know. coincidental. But yeah, <laughs> but you know, I, you know, I say cool, you know, but I didn't. So all I did, I just said, I need, to, you know, I need to speak to an attorney. I can't talk to you. Didn't say I'm on a CIA exercise or anything like that. You know, of I course. just said I need to speak to an attorney. And I stayed calm. Uh-huh. And they would say, "Oh, your wife's telling us something different story," because they had her in another room, right? She was a CIA officer herself, and I wasn't really worried about her. Oh, she, she was. Still, yeah, yeah. Oh, so. Um, so you were both in training, yeah, at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was, yeah. So she was, she was like, I, I didn't, I. She's tough, you know. By the way, you never, you never really answered the question of how you got in, which you can, you can tell oh, me I'll in go, a minute. I'll do that. But yeah. I, I'm starting to assume it might have had to do with the wife. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. I, mean, I met her. I met her after I got in CIA. Oh, no, okay. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. No, anyway, sorry. Continue. So, yeah. so anyway, so, I, I, so you asked for a lawyer. I asked for a lawyer, right. you know, and then eventually, after like two hours, they go, okay, operations over. They kind of smile, shake your hand. 
and then my trainer comes in, right? So I'm thinking, I did well. I was cool. I didn't didn't lose my cool. Right. I didn't, uh, you know, I, I didn't give any info or anything like that. So, they, so he started asking me questions. He said, so how many people were there in the arresting, who arrested you? How many men, how many women? How many cars? Did you get the license plate of the car? Where did they take you? Right. How far, how long did they drive? You know, all these questions, right? And I'm like, bleh, bleh, bleh. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't really have it because I was, in, I was pumped up when it was happening and I hadn't really. Your adrenaline's through the roof and you don't know what's going on. So I, 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 right. although I remained calm, I, I failed in my, what I now learned was my job. <laughs> my job was the minute you get arrested, the second you get arrested, you switch from offense to defense. Uh-huh. And now you're an investigator. Now you're trying to figure out what they know. Right. And now you have to you have to memorize that every, way you can pass the shit on. Yeah, memorize every right. detail of everything that you saw. So so when Moscow happened, I was like completely calm. I was like my inner video was turned on. Right. You know, and for the whole time that I was, you know, with them, I was working and I was trying to figure out what they knew, what they didn't know, and and I got some good information that gave some good indication that that they they didn't know it was going to be me when they got me. It took them like 15 minutes to figure out my identity because I didn't have identity. I mean, I was in disguise. There were evidence. There was so there were a number of things that made me feel like I probably had not brought surveillance to that meeting, nor had I probably been under surveillance at an earlier meeting. But I couldn't be sure. Um, but nevertheless, at least in that exercise or in the, in the real deal, I was a lot better, you know, than I was in the exercise. Right. When the training had worked, you know, right. well. So so anyway, it was like. Uh, that was the end of my time. In I mean, essentially, essentially, you were trained to expect that. Yeah. Well, the training worked. The CIA right. training was very good in terms of role play, putting mm-hmm. you in situations that would get you a big learning moment, as right. opposed to just book learning. You know, it's like they put you into real world s- type yeah, yeah, scenario. Yeah, that's how they do it, and it's it's great training. So, I left then, and it's not six years later, they arrest Aldrich Ames. Aldrich Ames was a CIA officer who had been the head of counterintelligence for Soviet East European Division. And lo and behold, I hear on the news that Ames has been working, had been working for the Soviets since May of 85. And so it now turns Everything out, got that explained. Was, yeah, that was the explanation. So Aldrich Ames had, and in fact, he had given them on the same day that, Paul, that our officer was arrested in Moscow on the Tolkachev case in June 13, 1985, that was the same day that Ames had given the names of all of our agents to the KGB Fuck. in Washington. And so they were rolling them up one by one based on the information that he provided. And so that ends up being kind of the punchline as to what, what was really going on. But it took wow. him to find out what it was. I remember his name. Yeah. Um, He's he... doing life, life in federal penitentiary in Lewistown, I think. I can't remember where he is, but somewhere on the East Coast. He got tried, and uh, yeah, he had you know he's considered to have caused the deaths of I think about twelve agents. Um, Soviet. Yeah, yeah, and he was a you know kind of guy. Was he felt that he, he he had financial problems, and he was trying to solve his financial problems, and he thought he was smarter than everybody else. He's got a story. You know, there've been a couple of books. There's a book called Confessions of a Spy mm. that's uh, by Peter Early. That's the Alder James story. So this whole thing that I just talked about. You know, it's like a kind of an epic year in sort of espionage history in which all these things happened in one year. Yeah. And it kind of unfolds 
from our perspective, in a kind of a thriller-like way, things start, I mean, we're doing great, we're killing it. Then things start going wrong. We don't know why. Then we think we know why because it's Ed Howard, but no, that doesn't explain it all. Right. There's, you know, maybe my guy's going to be able to, you know, give us the answer. My guy gets arrested too. And then finally, it's odd that a counter of Russian counterintelligence flipped, and then an American counterintelligence flipped. Yeah, but the head of counterintelligence—that's even yeah. worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were asking about how I got into the CIA. Yeah, with the CIA thing started. But by, by the way, how much did they pay Aldridge? Uh, he got paid. A, well, he started out with forty-seven thousand dollars. That was his first thing because he owed that. I, some he had some story that he needed that. They gave him that right away. Uh huh. I think he ended up getting paid a few hundred thousand. Oh no! Over the time, he got paid millions. Yeah, because he kept working for him until until ninety three. So he worked for seven or eight years. Ninety three. Yeah. Fuck. They didn't catch him until then. Yeah. So, um, why did they not catch him? There are books written about that too, because they, you know, he had he had money that was unexplained, but his wife was a was a Colombian, and the story that they developed was that her she had a very wealthy family mm-hmm. and so that was supposedly the explanation for which can be easily looked into now. well nowadays more so than then but then mm-hmm. they looked into it and they they didn't you know i don't know there was the mole hunt was going on i got called back and it got polygraphed a couple of times because i was on the list of possible they knew there Just was like mole. everybody no, well, anybody were, who knew all that info there was... were like 30 or 40 people right and i was off in the philippines at my next assignment Mm. And I got, you know, so you need to come back and do this polygraph. So I go back, you know, and go in and get polygraphed. And it was like, no big, I didn't think it was a big deal because I wasn't really worried about it. I mean, right. there was a lot of stuff that I really hadn't, I I, I didn't have the kind of access he did. He well, had you knew you weren't a mole anyway. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but you worry about a polygraph because you can, you know, polygraph, you can get nervous and you can register even if, but I know, I, I had done enough polygraphs by then that I felt like I was uh-huh. good on the polygraph. I, I, I had, you know, I didn't worry. I would I, know I didn't get worried. Do you believe in polygraphs? Yeah. Yeah, really? I do. I think that with, so there's so much science out there that says they're, they're, they don't work. No, I mean, I think the thing is... And they're they, beatable, right? Yes, they are beatable, but they are also quite useful. You know, and they, and they, they you can't just disregard what's there, but you have to interpret right. it, you know, in a kind of a careful way. You have to formulate the questions in a very, very good and careful way. Yeah, you need to an make expert sure that, doing you know, that. Yeah, right. and then you have to... Uh, you know, and I think there are certain people that you'd have to come away and say it's inconclusive. I can't tell. And there are other people you can say I'm confident that it's good, and mm-hmm. others you can say I'm confident it's bad. So there, there, are, there, are, you know. But I, I certainly felt like it worked. I guess in your business it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not sure about law enforcement as a different. You know. Yeah, I, I mean, I was thinking of it as a law enforcement thing, and yeah. you know, I think, think it's. Um, when you're saying inconclusive and pretty sure, those aren't terms that the law. <laughs> You know, those aren't terms you want to apply. Oh, no, but like, is di- he guilty? We, we think so. Yeah, We're yeah. confident, but, you know. Well, that's, I mean, it's very different. The standard of proof is different. Yes. Know, you know, you're yes. getting ready to take somebody's uh, freedom away from them and put them in prison for many years. You know, polygraph shouldn't be the tool for that. But if it's a tool for, you know, assessing an agent in some country that you wonder if he's working against us or not mm-hmm. is he under you know, is he under hostile control or is he for, is he legit i think yeah. it's a useful tool you know for that that so makes sense we did that we did all right that. so i, I distracted well, you anyway from- when i was out here in hollywood and i was like not i wasn't sort of uh let's just say i wasn't killing it i was doing okay uh-huh. but hollywood was not was resisting my charms and so um <laughs> you know i had when i was a senior in college I had been 
I'd done well. You, met, you know, I, I was a finalist in the Rhodes Scholarship Competition. Were you really? Wow. So, so I went up to New York uh, for the finals. I didn't make it. I was, you know, close but no cigar. Uh, but I made it to the finals. How many finalists were there? There are 32. No, there are 32. Uh, well, it's done regionally. So there's four, there's eight regions. Okay. Where four winners for each region. Okay. And then there were like 12 finalists for each region. So 12, four got it, right? All right. Um, so I'm up there and they have, like, it's a whole weekend. You know, I put you in a hotel. That's and, Oxford, right? Yeah, you go to Oxford for two years. Right. You know, a lot of famous people have been. It's a kind of a cool thing. It's, it's It was created by Cecil Rhodes, the diamond magnate from South Africa. Right. And it was designed to recognize uh, leadership, athletics, and academics. So you're supposed to be all, all those things, you know. So I had, right. you know. Clinton anyway, famous, yeah, famously Clinton was one. famously did it. A, a, Bill Bradley. A, uh, Bill Bradley, uh, right. Yeah. Uh, Rachel Maddow. Is a Rhodes Scholar. Is she really? <laughs> she is. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I know A.J. McCarron from yeah. the uh, yeah. uh, quarterback. He oh, was, yeah. No, it's a it's a. Pat, he might be right Pat, now Pat, still. Pat Hayden was a Rhodes Scholar. Oh, okay. Uh, it's a it's a real prestigious thing if you're... Yes. You know, I mean, I could have, like, if I had gotten in my life, would have gone a different direction, maybe. I mean, you know, but I mean, it was like, uh, I had the two options. One was... If I got I go to Oxford, I would probably have gone into international relations. Was what I thought. And if I went, to, if I didn't get, it, I was going to go to NYU and do film. Um, but I didn't. When I'm up there, I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. But there was a CIA recruiter at the cocktail party that they had for us, and he was sort of talking to everybody, and he talked to me, and got me thinking about what it did a he bit. say he, he was? Did he, he say? No, he was said, yeah, I'm CIA, and it was like really? yeah. He said, you know, we come around to this thing every year, and we talk to you guys, and just we don't usually recruit right out of college. But if you were to get the scholarship, or depending on what you do the next three or four years, you would be possibly of interest to us, you know, by the time you're 24, 25, have a master's degree, or, you know, you're more like that. And so it was just planted a seed, right? Mm -hmm. So the seed had been planted, but then I completely forgot about it. And I had no, you know, and then went I went back was, to being a PA in Hollywood. Yeah, I'm doing all that, right? <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and so this is like December, late December, 1978, I think, the very famous football game where Clemson is playing Ohio State in the Gator Bowl. And Woody Hayes, the coach of Ohio State, there's an interception and a Clemson player runs off the sidelines and Woody Hayes, the old curmudgeon coach of Ohio State, slugs the opposing player as he runs off, you know, runs out of bounds, hits him, clotheslines him, knocks Jeez. him down. Next morning, I'm reading the LA Times. I'm reading the article on this Big story. Woody Hayes is going to get fired. It's, it's a big scandal. Uh -huh. And at the end of that article was a little ad from the CIA that said, CIA is looking for some, you know, a few good men, basically. It said, looking for people who, uh, I still remember what it said. It said, looking for people who uh, uh, wish to serve overseas, vital public service overseas at times under hardship conditions, excellent communication skills, language skills, and a few other things like that. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And then I started thinking about it. And I thought right. about it, and I thought about it, and I went ahead and I... There's a phone number there? Yeah, and there's a, you know, send in a P.O. box, send in. So I did a one-page resume and sent it in, and then they, they called me in, and one thing led to another. Now, I was, I was very liberal in my politics, and I was very kind of like, wait a minute, CIA is like... This was after, you know, the, the era when it was... The CIA had been considered to be a rogue elephant. Remember, there was all these kind of negativity about the CIA. But my father had been a military officer, an army officer. I'd grown up as an army brat. 
Well, the yeah. FBI was famously very right too, yeah. and very like well, buttoned up. And well, and the thing about this, the CIA though, it, it, if you know when you're really going, the CIA is relatively liberal, and the FBI was very conservative. Right. So the FBI was like always like, you know, kind of re- would say Republican. Yeah. Remember the CIA started with OSS. In World War II, the Office of Strategic Services, yeah. which was populated by Ivy League and Hollywood people, right? Producers, actors, people like that. And it was very, kind of always had a kind of a little liberal Tweety kind of bent. I served for eight years under Reagan when I was very much on the left politically, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I had to just sort of, I didn't agree with Well, it's policy. supposed to be more non-political That's than it. anything, no, right? No, but here's yeah. the point, the point I was going to yeah. make is, I don't know to this day. All these guys that I told you that I served with, that I'm bonded with. You don't know what their policies are? I don't know are. what their policies are. Right. I have no idea. We never talked about it. Right. Never. And and it was just not, it was not a, not a subject of discussion. Yeah. And we were professionals. And, you know, but what I, where it was a factor for me was in deciding whether or not to do it in the first place. Because I was kind of part of the counterculture that would have looked upon, I, my friends, I couldn't tell my, I, well, you wouldn't tell them anyway because it's supposed to be undercover. Right. Yeah. But also my friends would say, what are you doing? Right. Meanwhile, though, I'm looking at it going, yeah, I mean, my father was in the army. He served in Vietnam. He died in Vietnam. And, you know, I mean, I grew up in that world and that culture. And my more liberal side had kind of emerged more more in my graduate school phase. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to that, I'd been kind of a jock student jock kind of guy, you know, probably somewhat conservative, not just politically, but just culturally. Right. right. And so. I still had, I was kind of like a, uh, you know, long-haired, bearded, guitar-playing, creative guy. Yeah. But all of that was kind of draped over a student council jock, short hair guy up until I was 20 or 21. So when this Mm -hmm. thing came along, you know, I kind of saw it in the context of, you know, it's lonely out here in Hollywood, not really making it, Mm -hmm. right? And you're just pursuing your own individual dream, and it's all about you, and it's all about your ego, Mm -hmm. versus be part of a team, be part of something special. And obviously it felt like elite. It felt like an adventure. And it felt like it was, you know, there was an element of patriotism. There, they also just don't ask anybody to Yeah, do that. well, I you mean, felt you felt special, you know, and you felt yeah. kind of badass in a certain way to be able to be part of that. And, and um, but I decided that, okay, here's how I'm going to solve my problem. The, the problems were like in third world countries where the CIA was trying to help overthrow, like take Chile or somewhere like that, right? Mm-hmm. They had... A popularly elected Salvador Allende, who was overthrown with the help of the CIA, and Pinochet, a right-wing creepy dictator, was put in. I wouldn't want to be part of that scenario, right? Right. That was really against my my politics. So what I said, well, I'm going to go in and I'm going to become a Soviet officer, and I'm going to work directly because you can't really. What's the? There's no moral dilemma to be a professional in Soviet operations going face to face with the KGB, our main enemy, you know, that kind of right. thing. So to me, there was a kind of a haven within which, at least I rationalized it that way, and I never did. I mean, I mean, I went in, that's what I became, that's what I spent my 10 years, you know, doing. Yeah, but, but I mean, can you really direct yourself to those things, or? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I was, there's no guarantee that you get with the division that you want to be, but they try. They do? Yeah, okay. they try. So coming yeah. in, do they say where? where well, would they you said, like "Look, to you're going to have to. You have to sign a paper that says I'm willing to serve wherever they send me." Right. right? But that, as a practical matter, they want to match people and their interests. Right. A lot of times, you have language interests that are going to, you know, drive it. Sure. And I, I just, you know, I said, "Well, I'd be really interested." I mean, what attracts me to do this is the real thing of espionage, 
done behind the Iron Curtain, and I'd like to get on a track to do that. And they said, well, if you do well in training, you know, you should be able to do that. I did well in training. I got, you know, and they brought me into, and I, and, and so they kind of have like a draft at the end of training. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's the they divisions. They tell you where you're going. The divisions are like the different teams, right? Right. And, you know, they've all been down kind of talking to us and schmoozing us. And did knowing, you speak Russian yet? Not yet, no. Okay. No, I had, I had studied Latin and Greek in college, and so I had scored very high on the aptitude, language aptitude, but I didn't have any modern languages other than a little bit of Spanish, but, so I had to learn it after I, you know, was there. Right. But. but and you were at Philippines. Later. Later, did you learn Tagalog? Tagalog, yeah. I Tagalog, Tagalog, right. Yeah. I always say it wrong. Yeah, yeah. Tagalog. <laughs> Tagalog, yeah. I know. I always say it that way. I don't know yeah, why. Yeah. But it was like, you know, I, the thing is, it was, it was, for me, it was a big deal to kind of say, okay, I'm going to do this and, you know, kind of get past my, my sort of leftover hippiness, you know. <laughs> Your hippie tendencies. And to sort of like find a way to kind of rationalize it. But I also really enjoyed being kind of that guy who was a little different, who was a little bit not. Right. You're, you know, kind of the obvious thing. And, you know, there was ego, adventure. and That's the thing. I, gu- I would guess the CIA likes that, too. Yeah, they want it. You need to have some. They don't want everybody to be the cookie cutter. Oh, no, that's what they told me. The day I went in for my interview, I didn't own a suit, right? And I, and I had, my hair was, I mean, I was playing guitar in clubs. And, you know, I had, the look was like uh, kind of longish hair and a beard. And, right. and I, you know, I had some sort of a suede jacket that was kind of a quasi- suit jacket but not really i didn't have a tie i bought a tie and i had like a safari not a safari but like a you know those kind of pocket shirts that have a lot of pockets and stuff uh-huh. and i kind of put it all together and said oh it looks okay it looked like a little bit like a journalist or something right okay and i went in but the guys immediately go like oh yeah college professor we need people like this we need people that don't look like me the guy that was interviewing me was short hair and you know had on blue blazer and a right so to tie. him you stood out like a sore thumb and, and he was like yeah this is you know and and it was like we need we you know we need to be creative with our cover. We need to have people that don't you know don't look like cookie cutter. And to, I I thought well okay if, I'm glad you feel that way because it's kind of I, and I, at the time I was in Moscow I had to eventually shave off my beard, cut my hair, and all that because in in Russia, in Soviet Union, there were no bearded people except for a few priests. Really? No, it was all short hair, military style, and no facial hair. Huh? Very a few had mustaches, but very few. You would think. No. So I had to, when I, I arrived with a beard and everything, but I cut it off because that only then could you then do all the disguise things that I wanted to do with, you know, all that. So for the time I'm in Moscow, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, clean shaven right. and short hair, but before and after, you know, that was not my style and stuff, you know, right. so, you know, but. So I, when you went on to other deployments, you grew your hair, you grew your Yeah, beard yeah, out I went again. back to the Philippines. Well, I had one more. I went to the Philippines oh. after Moscow. So I, get, I left Moscow. If you put this in context, it was about a month and a half after the Challenger explosion, if you remember that. The, you know, so of you course, I watched it in the then, sky. Yeah, yeah, if you remember. I was in Orlando. Were, yeah, Orlando, right? Yeah. So it was that, that's when we're talking about, right? And it was... God, there was so much going on in the and, world. And it was also... What a crazy year. About two weeks after... Um, Marcos fled the Philippines and Corazon Aquino came to power as the president, new president of the Philippines. And they... It's a whole thing about the shoes, right? That was Imelda, Marcos. Right, Imelda, right. right. But Marcos had been a dictator. Marcos had been elected in 1969. He'd become a... He declared martial law in 1972 and he had been the dictator of running the Philippines from 72 until 80, 85, 86. 
There were elections in 85, and he kind of was believed to have stolen the election from Corazon Aquino, who was the wife of a slain, martyred uh, Benigno Aquino, uh, who many thought was going to be the next president after Marcos. Mm. He came back from exile in the U.S. And remember, he was shot on the tarmac at the airport. He arrived in, the flight arrived, and he, and he went down the stairs and they shot him. Jeez. They shot him right you know, there. So that led to two or three years of unrest. Corazon Aquino became the the unifying candidate for the opposition. They had the elections. Marcos appeared to steal the elections. And then people power happened. The people came out on the street. Um, they had enough, and, finally. And, and eventually Marcos fled with the help of the Americans to Hawaii. And Corazon Aquino came to power. Why, so, did, why did we help him? Marcos was anti-communist. This was the day, in the days of the domino theory and like that. Right? Right. So Marcos was, was one of those dictators that we ended up being. But we were by the time it ended, the Americans wanted Marcos to leave and they wanted to move on, but it was hard to make it happen. So when it actually did happen, and this was before I got there, but it's a good way to encourage him out by by telling him we'll yeah well, we'll help you, know, you yeah help him you know let him get I'm out. I'm sorry, and then and then he um, so Aquino came to power. And so I got on a plane, I go back to Washington, it's like two, three weeks after this had happened. My name, I've, I've been in the news, I'm blown, you know, completely. It's like my departure. You'll never from, have cover again, right? Well, never have anything other than a very nominal cover. You know, in other words, anybody could easily figure out who I, you know, who I was. Right. So the options were for me to then stay in Washington for a while mm. or take an assignment to some friendly country where I could be declared to the host government and work with the host government. Okay. Now, meanwhile, the Philippines had just blown wide open with the whole new thing. And now, remember, for 11 years, they'd had martial law. So all of their democratic institutions had been compromised. compromised. <laughs> and, you know, and so there was a whole big thing. We were going we're gonna to work with them. Remember, the Philippines was an American colony for 50 years, from 1898 until 1947. It was an American colony. A lot right. of Americans don't know that. Yeah. Right? And we had deep, deep, you know, involvement there. And so the idea was that we were going to try and help reestablish democracy in the Philippines and the CIA was going to, you know, liaise with the host government in various ways. And there was a certain situation that came up as a result of Aquino and some of the people that were close to her where they had a need for a young American to go and handle some very sensitive high-level liaison with like the highest levels of the government over there. And I, it just happened that my former boss from one of my earlier tours was the head of East Asia Division mm. when they were looking for somebody for this job. And he had just heard about me in the news. And he said, well, that sounds like a good match. So they called me in. And I said, oh, hell yeah, I'd go, you know, Philippines after Moscow, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and a hell of a lot warmer. And so I was a lot warmer, get to play some golf, do some stuff, you know. And so yeah. I said, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and then... It turned out, I'm thinking, well, I missed all the excitement because Marcos had fled and now there was the new government. Right. But it, then it turned out in the next four years that I was going to be there, there were seven coup attempts against her. Jesus. And so it ended up being, you know, pretty wild when I was out there. Um, and there was a communist insurgency and I, I was running a, a program to, you know, counteract the communist insurgency. Um, so I had a really interesting time there as well. Hmm. Um, and, uh, but that was how I got back into film was the Philippines, because this was the era of Platoon, Apocalypse Now, right. the Delta Force movies being made over there, 
And so I kind of saw it as my opportunity to come back into film by... Did they make Rambo over there, too? They made, I don't know if they made any Rambo movies there. Mm. Maybe. I don't know. They're not, it's not usually talked about. The ones that I, I mentioned are the ones that you hear, the, the big ones. And then there were a lot of little ones, mm. uh, one called McBain, this and that. But it was a good place to go do any kind of Vietnam War movie. They had a really vibrant local industry of yeah. making about... Um, at that time, they were making about... Uh, over 100 movies a year <clears throat> for the domestic market there. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. And, uh, and probably five or six or eight international, you know, U.S. movies would come over and shoot. And so I was like, okay, here's how I get back in. I'll set up a company, do co-productions, production services and co-productions. And so that's what I did. I le- that's when I left the CIA and I... And I set up this company, Pacific Hollywood Studios, well, and started making movies in the Philippines. Was was so the ten years? Was that just a? What? Is that like the standard? No. Most people do longer. That was a personal thing. Yeah. I what what I had I had always viewed it as a detour from right. my main thing. Right. I was a creative. I was right. Well, the whole time I'm in CIA, I'm trying to write novels. I'm writing music. Right. I still got this creative bug. Yeah. Right. I'm always planning to get back to it. That's and, been with you your whole life, yeah, clearly. Yeah. Yeah. And for film, it's not like because a lot of there's some careers you could start when you're 45 or 50, but not really film. I don't think you know. So I kind of figured I had 10 years, and I had watched my father. My father had been a, an engineer, Corps of Engineers in the Army, mm. and he was in the Army. And I remember right around the 10 year point. He was being, we were living in Houston at the time. NASA was just starting, and he was being offered some really interesting jobs as an engineer, but he didn't take them because he was going to hang in for 20 years and get his retirement. And he became bitter over, over that. And right. it actually really kind of ruined his life that he didn't take the chances that were there. Right. And it made me very conscious of the way you become kind of a slave to your retirement. So I kind of knew if I got beyond the 10 year point, it would get harder Then it's and like, harder. why not just stay another yeah, ten, yeah, eight years, yeah, seven yeah, years, yeah, six yeah, years? Yeah, and so as I hit the 10-year point, I'm like, and there are other things happening too. Like, for example, the Berlin Wall came down right when I was coming into about the nine, 10 years. Right. right. The whole Soviet operations thing changed over the next couple of years. And all, what had been the main enemy now was looking like they were going to be our friends. The, the Cold War, we won the Cold War. I kind of felt like, and it's I all want, downhill from here. And so, and so I was like, okay, you know what I want to do? I want to get into counterterrorism. That's going to be the next big thing. I was sure of it. And that was what I wanted to do. But they were insisting that I stay. And they, you know, I, I, they, they'd give me an assignment to go to Athens. And I wanted to, because I said, okay, I'll go to Athens, but put me in charge of the liaison branch, which works with the Greeks. And there's a whole lot of Middle Eastern terrorism stuff going on there. And you can, you know, I get involved. They said, no, you're going to be the head of the Soviet branch. And I said, this is like 1991. I don't want to do that. Yeah. You know, I've done it. It's time over it. So that was happening. Um, other things happened. And so I, I just felt like, you know, 10 years was good. You yeah. Know? And, well, it's yeah. funny, though. There was all those hijackings. That would have been 85, 86, 87, somewhere in there. Yeah, there was stuff. No, there was stuff. The there was TWA stuff. hijacking. They were trying to get them to fly to Cuba. Mm-hmm. So wait, but and but yeah, and stuff happened in that that time frame. It was a it was a big time to the the bombings in Beirut. Yes, were happening. You know the. Um, the but I'm saying there's a there was a lot of like early terrorism stuff that happened. That, oh yeah. So it made sense for you to kind of. Oh yeah, well you could see it coming, 
you could see it coming. Stuff had been happening. I mean, there have been the Marines being blown up in Beirut in 85, 86. 230 yeah. people were killed. It's a huge thing. There had been the... Car bomb, um, right? Car, yeah. First use of a car and, bomb and ever, the CIA, the CIA director, the CIA station chief in Beirut, Buckley, had been uh, abducted. Then they bombed our embassy and killed 60 people. Then later in the, you know, um, there were a lot of, I mean... I don't I, even know what that stuff was over. Uh, it was the whole Lebanon, U.S. helping the Israelis. Is that what it was? Yeah, they were yeah. just mad at the U.S.? But you also had the whole, you know, European terrorists that were doing stuff. But the whole <coughs> Middle Eastern thing was, was getting big. But I just felt like I was in it. The excitement was a big part of what I was looking for, right? I mean, I wasn't. I wasn't making a. I wasn't just trying to have a job. I was trying to have an adventure, right? And feel like I was doing something important. And there was an adrenaline rush kind of thing to it. Mm -hmm. And so, and I just saw that was where I wanted. You know, I wanted to do where I wanted to go. And they were kind of being stubborn about it. And I was right at a moment, you know, where I had like a creative. I really wanted to do my creative thing, you know, and, right. and uh, even the last year I was at the embassy, I'm still in, at the embassy, I started producing record albums in the Philippines as a sideline <laughs> with Filipino artists. Really? And so, yeah, because for like $5,000, like the cost of a vacation, I could produce an album and I was like getting into it. And I was recording some of my own stuff in this. Were you making money? I got my money back. Oh, okay. You know, because I, 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 there were two albums that I did. And one of them, uh, you know, we sold the master to one of the local labels. And then the other one, we released some other way. But it was like a, so I was kind of already got my foot back in the door. Right. You know, I'm kind of going you had off. one foot out out of, out of the sea. Yeah, already, right? and, and I was, you know, so I was like, I was ready, to, you know, to shift. But it, but had they given me the counterterrorism thing. You would have hung around. I would have hung around. Yeah. Right. Yeah. At yeah. least to see how it went. Yeah. 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 Well, that's fantastically interesting uh let's take a break and we can talk about your when you actually got back into film. hollywood and yeah. film the back door is how it turned out okay <laughs> we'll uh, we'll be right back okay we're back so we we got another uh white claw and we're ready to jaw some more <laughs> now we're going to talk about movies so i can yeah I can, I can i can do my cautionary tale of how not to produce movies <laughs> So I have a I have a, I have, a ta I have many tales to tell as you can tell already. But should yeah, I like should it. I say this is the 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 first time you got arrested in Russia was not the last time you'd be arrested. True. No, actually, <laughs> although I, I don't know if you ever were. No, no, I never was arrested. Okay. But but yeah, let's just say that uh, there have been more more uh, cataclysms and debacles in my in my experience. So and we're going to talk about that. Yeah, so. yeah. But you you produced how many movies? Uh, I. I if you go on IMDb, it's like there's like twenty. Okay. I think if the way I count them is like there were about about six or seven that I hands on really produced start to finish, and six or seven that I executive produced, and so I had some role in it. Okay. And six or seven that I directed. So altogether, there's twenty. Right. You know, and of which there's about ten or twelve that I was really involved in, either as director, producer, or producer and director. Right. Okay. And then and then. Uh, and then there were a few others that are in there that I had lesser involvement, but I'm credited as an executive producer. You know, what, you raised some money for raised them some or something? Money or did something like that. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And then you were raising money just through I, well, private parties and... When I started. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, how how do you even start that? You find somebody... You no, find... what I did, well, I was in the Philippines. I told you I was. Right. I started in the Philippines, and I had, because of my job... Um, 
at the embassy, my CIA oh, job. You knew some high-level people. Uh, yeah, I knew some very high-level people. And so, you know, it's like, and they were like, oh, yeah, Hollywood in the Philippines, that's great. Oh, we would like to support that, right? So I get some investors who are like big, you know, high-level Filipino chemical industry, titans of industry kind of a thing. Start out, they're going to... But a lot of people want their toe in well, Hollywood, but for it, sure. Yeah, yeah. So it starts out, they were going to give me like, you know, it was going to be a few million dollars to sort of make a couple of movies and have a little studio and... By the time it was all over, they gave me like $100,000, which was just enough to sort of set up an office and then start trying to... Um, Find other investors. Yeah, and, and, and like that. So so why did it go that way? Oh, it just was... I mean, you know, that's just how it, how it came down, but People I was determined big. to do it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so okay. it was like they said, well, you know, you get some other money in and we'll bring in some... So what happened is one of the brothers of my main investor did want to make a movie, but he wanted to make a Filipino movie. Didn't want to make a Hollywood movie, right? So, so he got a little bit of money. So he said, you know, and so I'm going. Well, I want to make movies, right? It's a movie. And meanwhile, I was being pitched this really nice Filipino movie by this really nice director named Ed Palmas, who I hit it off with. He was very talented, and um, and Ed had an investor, and Ed's investor had half the money. You know the half the money story, right? No. So, well, I mean, every, uh, producing independent production is based on walking around saying, I have half the money, <laughs> whether you do or not. And then once you get the first half, then you get the second half. I mean, that kind of a thing. Right, 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 so, right. So Ed, People but, only commit once somebody else is committed so, kind of thing. So Ed has like, but he's got an investor, and he takes me to meet the investor. And this is, uh, this guy's the greatest guy. He's about 450 pounds, nicest, sweetest man you'd ever meet in your life, uh-huh. who made his money in the Philippines, a Filipino, uh-huh. By putting together a line of shampoo and other products that appear to have been imported from Australia, but are really being made in the Philippines. And, you know, okay. he's got a good brand, nice guy. And and the story that Ed wanted to do, we were going to do a movie for the F- Manila Film Festival, which is every year at Christmas time. They have a film festival of all Filipino movies that celebrate Filipino values. So Ed had a screenplay that was going to celebrate Filipino values in, in, in very special ways. And it was about a woman who had been from a poor family and who had become a, a prostitute, but who was kind of rescued from that, became a, uh, a good middle-class wife, has her kids, but then her husband dies. Mm. They have no insurance, nothing like that. They go back down into the slums. Mm. And it ends up being a big story about family. And, and you know, it's a good big drama kind of a thing. Okay. So Ed wants to make this movie. He's got an investor with half the money. Ed's an American guy. Ed, no, Ed's Filipino. Okay, Filipino. got it. All right. And he's an award-winning, very talented director. Okay. You know. And uh, I can't remember how we met, but he's pitching this to me. And I go, so I go. And so he's got half this. So we go out and meet the guy. And the guy wants to make it. It turns out his story, the owner of the Australian his wife had a similar backstory to the one in the movie. So he wanted, oh, wow. you know, it was kind of like he had done. So we got half the money. So then my investor says he'll come in with half the money. So we got money to make the movie, theoretically. Mm-hmm. It's like a couple hundred thousand dollars total is what we're talking about. My investor puts up the money. The other guy, it turns out his money, he's released one other movie previously, and that movie is out in the theaters and it's doing well. And his money is in receivables from the distributor, <sighs> right? So his money's not quite ready, but uh-huh. it's coming. That's what they tell me, right? Uh-huh. So I go ahead in a very reckless way. I have to say this was like youth and I believe... I know the well, guy. you trusted him. I trusted him. 
Right. And, but I kind of had a little, I said, maybe I, you know, but if I had waited, maybe we wouldn't make the movie. Right. So I go ahead, and so we start spending my money in pre-production. And the way it works in the Philippines is you pay all the actors everything in advance. So you're, you're going, yeah, it's just it has to do because they don't trust independent, you know. Um. And so a lot of money, you, you, you rent your equipment for the whole shoot in advance. Mm. So by the time <coughs> we're coming up to the first day of filming, my money's almost gone. Right, but didn't you already have half the money from your investor? That's what I'm talking about, that money. Oh, okay, your, your, the money you brought in. Yeah, that's right, what we're spending. It. Understood. Meanwhile, his money's about to drop any day, any day, any day, any day his money's going to drop. Right. Hasn't dropped. We're He's essentially the, waiting on a check from the distributor. Yes. Right. So we're the night before, and I go down and see the distributor, and I talk to the distributor. Oh, you know, I'm getting panicky. We're getting closer and closer. We've done pre-production. So you confirm that they owe him money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they say it's coming. So then... It gets to be the night before we're going to first day of filming, mm -hmm. and his money still hasn't dropped. And I've got just about enough money to get us through the first three days of filming. Mm -hmm. But I've really prepaid a lot, right? Yeah. So, and his money's—he's swearing it's going to drop. Meanwhile, I, I have a—I'm at that point. I'm—I have a girlfriend. Uh, we're living together. She's pregnant. This becomes part of the story in a moment. Mm. She's like eight months pregnant, nine months almost. So on this night, before the first day of filming of my first movie, uh, two o'clock in the morning, there's a big banging on the gate of my, my house. There's you know, a gated kind of thing. I go down, it's the guy. He's sitting in his car. He can't drive himself, he's so big, he has to have a truck. Somebody drives him and he has a special seat. This big 450 pound guy uh -huh. is sitting in the front seat with tears rolling down his face telling me he's got to pull out. He can't, it's not going to happen. He's out. Why? The money's not coming. He's, he, you know, he, they've, been, they've been shining him on, and he says that, you oh, know. Oh, so he's been now, now they told him. they've told him that they don't owe him any money. He's been hoodwinked. Yeah. Okay. So, and I go like, oh. This is 3 in the morning, and call is 6 a.m. in the morning. And he, he um, leaves. I close the gate. And I walk back into the apartment. There's a house. It's a house, two-story house. Yeah. And uh, and I look at the top of the stairs. My girlfriend is standing there, and she says, "My water broke." <laughs> She's ready to go to the hospital for have her first baby. Oh. So we're like, okay. So my first day of filming, I you know I'm in the hospital when my my daughter, my beautiful daughter, is born. Uh, that's a wonderful thing. Then I go off to the set, which is in the, one of the slums of Manila, one of those ones you've seen in the, you know, because uh, this is a scene when they're living in the slums. Mm -hmm. I go there, and I only get to spend like the first day is the only day that I really spend on set. And from that moment on, I'm trying to get the money to finish the movie. Mm -hmm. And I do. I mean, there's like, I learn all the ways in the Philippines that, you know, once you start filming, you make stills. And once you have stills, you can go to the distributors. And then the distributors will, it, theaters will give you advances. Because I had oh, really? big star, big stars in the movie. It was like for there, it was like going to be a big, you know, it's a big cast, okay, big, big name stars, and so we immediately from the first day, you know, I have a theater booker, I have the the the, the album with all the stills, and they have big stars and they see them, and we start going to the theaters and we get like twenty five thousand from this theater, <laughs> that you know, like that. Okay. Meanwhile, we're looking for investors, and I spend the whole shoot one step ahead of payroll. You know, and wow. you did it. Everybody gets paid. We finish the movie, and I get it done. But I almost have a nervous breakdown in the process 
And I swear I'm never going to do anything like that again. <laughs> until you did. Until I did, right? Right. So, I mean, and I think, you know, honestly, I was a, I mean, I, the one connection between the CIA experience and what I would become my film experience was risk-taking. Mm. I mean, I had lived in an atmosphere of risk. We didn't talk, we talked about the Moscow thing and you were asking about being fearful. I was more fearful in the Philippines when I was allegedly, or we knew that they, they, they had assassinated one of my colleagues, the oh. defense attache. Shit. And the, 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 the people that were, the communist insurgents had the chief of station, the ambassador, the defense attache, and me because I had been in the media because of my thing in Moscow. Oh, so you were so high profile. Yeah, and so I mean, I was more scared there where I had, you know, things like that. But I'm Makes saying, sense. But you know, you kind of feel, you also feel sort of like, yeah, but I can handle this and you know, I'm not gonna, you know, but I'm doing, varying my route and doing all these things. Right, right. right. And so, but I mentioned that because the idea of taking that risk at that time, I mean, I'm 37 years old. I had lots of testosterone. I had lots of confidence. I had every belief that I could make it happen. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't going to, you know, I, there, I was, failure was not an option. And I, and I right. kind of learned the indie film world kind of starting with that, that it took a lot of willpower to will it to happen. Mm-hmm to make things happen. And then if you didn't will it to happen, that things will kind of fall apart. You know, you'll, you'll kind of, you'll, you, you, know, you know those people, we all know these producers that never get a movie made, but have five projects that they're talking about, you know, that kind right. of thing. And I just felt like, so I made that first movie, then, you know, made a couple more Filipino movies where I had a, a Chinese lady became an investor and she paid for the whole thing. And it was like easy. I didn't have to worry about money for those. Then I began doing... Did you make American movies? Yeah, then okay. I began making right. American movies. So then I got my first... My first international movie was a co-production with Menachem Golan and 21st Century Films, a $350,000 uh, martial arts movie called Death Fight. Menachem Golan. Golan Globus. Remember that? The famous... Uh, Golan Globus in the 80s. They were like the big Israeli filmmakers that okay. did... They did Canon Films. Canon Films was their company. Okay. Okay, and then... And then they split up, and then Menachem had 21st Century, which was at that time a pretty big company making a lot of movies. And he had he wanted to make this movie uh, because he had some he had pre-sales on the movie, mm-hmm. and he uh, had eighty thousand dollars locked in an account in the Philippines from some earlier movie. And he met me, and he goes, "Oh, you're in the Philippines. Can you come in, co-produce with me this movie? I've got eighty thousand. How much can you put in?" And I said, well, I don't know. I put in 50,000 is all I got. And so I put in 50, he put in 300. We make the movie. We shoot the movie. As we're shooting the movie, their money, I, my money gets spent first. Same, like I didn't learn anything, right? <laughs> then their money's coming in every week. Mm-hmm. Every week there's a, a transfer, cash flow, everything's happening until the day we wrap. And the day we wrap, not another penny comes in from them. And they And I had things that were on a credit line, like my, I had a credit line with Kodak, mm-hmm. $25,000 was gonna be owed to Kodak after we wrapped, right? Right. I had I had credit line with the, because I've been making these local movies and I had good credit, right? Yeah. Cre- so all of a sudden, the movie's over, they didn't put in their 300, they put in like 200, and now I've gotta finish the movie, pay off these debts, do the post-production, and I never got any more money from them. Again, I did it, I got it done, 
um, more investors, you know, and, and, I, and, and I got my, but now I've got my calling card. Now I made an international movie, right? right? But still, you know, not really a smart businessman, <laughs> right? And then my story goes on like that, where I have, you know, it's like one thing, but eventually I get back to America after I do like movies in the Philippines until 1999, I come back here and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm raising my own, I mean, I'm putting deals together mm-hmm. and I'm doing a lot as executive producer where it's more about deal making. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm up to like eight or nine movies now, maybe 10, you know, it's 2000. Um, things are going okay, but I'm not getting the creative Right, you wanted to direct and write and write. So I finally get an opportunity to direct in 2002, a movie called Vlad, shot the one I told you about earlier, yeah. where we shoot it in uh, in Romania. and uh, You produced that too, though, I right? produced it, but I had a co-producer, and mm. he put in two-thirds of the money. I, I came up with one-third. And, um, you know, we go over there and we make the movie, and I get to direct, and you know it's pretty cool. It's a it's a pretty cool movie. Um, a lot of big production value for small money, and uh, and I get some recognition as a director, and I'm, I want to direct, right? So where I start going, things start going wrong for me. I I would say is when I decided I'm going to direct, and I need other people to raise money, and I need to. You're over raising the money. I'm done. I don't right. want to do it anymore. Yeah, you know, and so. And so I have, you know, some, I hire some fundraisers and, uh, and then where it really comes into a crisis, and this is where my story turns into a very serious cautionary tale, <laughs> is that it's 2006. I've now made, you know, I've directed my, I'm on my second or third movie as a director. The movie is called Eye of the Dolphin. We're in post-production. I had some investment and then I have some loans. The loans are coming due. The movie's in post. It's winning awards in a kind of a work-in-progress version. It's winning awards in festivals, but it hasn't been released. It had some, you know, some pretty good cast in it, and it was a, a nice movie. We shot in the Bahamas and from the heart. And uh, I had a great producing partner, Susan Johnson, who had just done Mean Creek, and she had just won the Independent Spirit Award for Mean Creek. Right. She's and also been on this show, so there's... She's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she, she's nice. And so we're in post... And uh, and it's kind of desperate times, you know. I mean, I'm I'm like I don't know how I'm going to pay off these kind of hard money loans that are coming due. I've got, you know, I I got to finish the movie and I want to see, get it released. Um, but there's a great hope in the movie too because it's a really nice movie. It's won these nice awards from all these different festivals and stuff like that. And it that. might make some money. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a real chance. There's a real feeling that it might, you know, it might click. Right. Right. And so, how much do you owe? I owe like six hundred thousand, yeah. And then I've got I need another two hundred thousand to finish post, and then I need to you know if if depending on what the release. What was scenario, the total budget of the movie? The production budget was like two, little over two, and okay. then a re- and then of two or two and a half for what we ended up being the theatrical release. Right. right? So you so, shot film too. Yeah, shot, shot thirty five. Yeah. yeah. So so right when it the, the worst the crucial moment. When I'm desperate, there's this fundraising group that's out there that has been raising money, and people in the industry in the independent world knew of them. They had been raising money for a company called Cinemore, and Cinemore had, you know, I think there was like $25 million for like three movies over the previous couple of years. One of them was called From Mexico with Love. One of them was called, I can't remember the other ones. And I had had some contact with these guys before, 
they had shown some interest in maybe raising money for me. Mm-hmm. But you know, but now I'm in this moment. Who is it? Like two guys? There's 14 guys in a room. Two guys, two 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 principals. Okay. You know, I'm not going to say their names here because no, 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 no. They're, I don't, I don't want to. But I mean, that you know, you don't want to piss anybody off. Well, so, <laughs> but they come to me and say, "Listen, we are done with Cinemore, and we want to, you know, we want to raise money for your movies." And I'm kind of feeling like, well, you know, these guys have had a proven track record, mm-hmm. and um, like they look completely legitimate. And I'm desperate. I mean, I'm at the point where, boy, I should need some help to kind of solve this problem, right? Right. And. And so uh, I go, okay. And then they quickly raised the money to pay, within three months, they raised the money to pay off my debts. 800 grand. Yeah, no, they ended up raising like three million, two and a half million. And it's enough for the debts to be paid, the film to be finished, and then for the film to be released theatrically and 100 screens, you know. And unfortunately, the movie didn't do as well as we had hoped it would. The film festival reaction was great. It was a little bit of a, it was a PG-13 family film, and the girl, there was a 13-year-old girl in the movie who drinks and smokes marijuana. It's part of the story was it was a kind of a modern-day true she story. She goes kind of crazy. And Not crazy, he, but you know, she goes a little wild. Yeah, right. and, 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 and it worked really well from sort of the festival circuit where people felt like it was a real good story of a father-daughter love story of bonding, uh, you know, with mm-hmm. the science element. We won awards for science because the dolphin dimension is about a father as a dolphin researcher. Right, so. yeah. And it's a thematic story about communication. And actually, it's a story that was based on my own experience with my own daughter, where I was an absent father, and and we didn't communicate. And mm. you know, I kind of wrote the story as a as a kind of a, an effort to get connect with my own daughter. And fortunately, that really helped with that. And she and oh, I good. have been better ever since. So, but meanwhile, they raised this money quickly, and now. It's like, well, we're going to make a sequel. Everybody wanted to make, because the movie was, at, at the time we were releasing the movie, even though it wasn't doing big in theaters, it was not too expensive. It had great production value because of the dolphins and all of that. Mm-hmm. And we really believed that we had a, a budding franchise that was going to become like a big deal. And so we, we decided. Yeah, a series of kind of family right, movies. Built around a dolphin research station right. in the Bahamas kind of a thing, right? Right. And so we, and so they they start raising money for the second movie, which was originally going to be called Way of the Dolphin. So we had we had uh, Eye of the Dolphin. Well, I worked on that, and when we shot it, it was Way of the Dolphin. Way of the Dolphin, and then later on, its name changed. Right. So to Beneath the Blue. Beneath the Blue. Right. So then we're we're on to the second movie. They're raising the money, and about before we start shooting, um, I'm discovering. I'm having some disputes with them over what they're doing and the way they're raising the money. In particular, I discovered that they were, they had a thing where they had all their own investors, or not all, but many, and they were, they were having these conference calls where they put like 10 investors on the phone, only it was not just 10 investors, it was 10 investors and one or two people who were not investors, but who were posing as investors to make it sound like they had had these great results and stuff like that. I got wind of this. And I told them to stop. Oh, so they have plants saying, yeah. oh, I made, I put in a hundred grand and I made 200 yeah. grand or whatever. And they're saying stuff like we have some deal in China. All the paperwork, I want to be clear, all of the, the what's called the private placement memorandum and all of that was all complete and all the risk disclosures were there and all the investors were supposed to be what are called, were 
uh, accredited investors or people of high net worth who are supposed to be sophisticated. I mean, all this, there was a lot of stuff about this that was done right, but their verbal representations were problematic. Mm. And so we got into a fight. And there was this whole paper trail of the fight with me telling them they can't do it and them telling me, screw you, you we raise the money, you make the movie, mm. you know, kind of thing. And it leads to me firing them. We shoot the movie. We kind of get. But the they raised the money already. They raised the some of them. Well, okay. some. Okay. We get the movie in the can. We still got de- debts. You know, it's complicated the way you know. But yeah. And then this all happens in two thousand eight, fall of two thousand eight, when the whole bottom falls out financially. So we're shooting. Remember, we're shooting in Bahamas in July of two thousand eight. And I was so happy to have that gig because the writers just went on strike. Yeah, writers went on strike. And I thought, oh, I'll be there for a month and a half. Yeah. I'll come back. It'll all be settled. <laughs> So oh, that was very wrong. Well, and the thing is, is that, you know, we do the film, we shoot, and we come back, and it's like September 2008. Everything has fallen apart. And meanwhile, I've got these debts coming due, things that have been done. And these guys are, you know, we're having a dispute. And so it kind of limps forward through the fall. And, you know, there's this documented dispute with me, you know, and, and telling them that I don't, I, you know, they can't do this. And I fire them. It's 14 guys, you know. And I mean, listen, I have to be clear. I should have known better. Mm-hmm. It was, they were known. They were known to be raising money for Cinemore, and it was known that those movies weren't very good. And it was, it's a boiler room. I mean, it really was. Right. Now, that was a legal, bo- I, mean, I understood it to be legal. But when they started making misrepresentations, that takes it across the line. It's not legal anymore. Right. Right? And even if the- And how are they finding these people? They well, they had a they had a list of over five hundred from their previous. They had raised, from what I understand, they raised a total of thirty five million dollars because that's what they were accused of when they eventually you know were brought to trial. Right. Of that thirty five million, seven million was raised for me, and twenty eight million was raised for the other company. So that's what you know. So right, right, right. So, and well, and and how are they? They take a cut of everything. Yeah, take a cut. And what was, you know, they were. The way I had, and I, and I had they get a, like six percent or something. No, they get more than that. And the thing is, is that what they get is, and that's part of the, that's where I was. If you look at how much the cost of money is, if you go and raise money for for an independent feature film, and if you consider what you pay executive producers, what you pay for the completion bond, what you pay for your finance charges, your loan charge, all of those things, yeah, it's not five or six percent. It ends up coming up close to fifteen to twenty percent is what the actual costs are if you go through a traditional system, right. I was paying these, and so these guys, I had to pay no executive producers because they were the executive producers. Right. I had to pay no completion bond because if we needed more money, we would have to have to go raise more money. So I had it worked out, right, that the amount that they were getting paid was no more than it would have cost me for the money going the traditional route. Okay. Okay. But still, it's a lot. It's twenty They're trimming twenty percent yeah, off the yeah, top of yeah. your cash, right? So, and I mean, I look back on that and I go. Was that a wise thing? No. But every other penny that was raised was going to the movie. I, and I was, I was not driving around in a Ferrari. Mm-mm. I was, you know, and I was, I was drawing a weekly salary, and that's all I ever got, stuff like that. Yeah, I know. No, you, weren't, you weren't living it up. No. You weren't out spending production's money at the bar. Well, and so then... We did go to the bar, though. Well, we did go to the bar, but everybody paid. <laughs> we yeah. all paid our own way. <laughs> we so, had a lot of fun down there. Actually. So it happened. But anyway, yeah, sorry. So anyway, we get back and and um, we're. It's March first is when I fire them. And uh, 
they leave, and we're still in post-production on the movie. And on April 29th, 2009, the FBI comes through the door. And they do a search at my office. Of your office, wow. my home. And they tell me that they're simultaneously searching nine locations. Um, so they knocked on your door, or they broke it down? <laughs> they came through the door. My, my, yeah, I mean, I was at the office. My wife was at home. My wife was leaving to come to work when she opened the door and they were in the hallway. Oh, so they were, they were searching Europe? They always go to your home because they think that people are going to hide documents there. So they went to the office and your home at the yeah. same time. And nine other places. Or a, well, they, a, nine a, other places didn't have anything to do with me. They had to do with Cinemore and that sort of thing. So they were, they were, they were hitting Cinemore and, and us. Those guys, right. And, you know, right away they, they told me that um, they had been under investigation since 2005. This is 2009. Right? Oh, shit. They said that... Uh, we understand you're not living large. I mean, I'm talking, this was the head FBI agent who ran the thing, and he's telling me, you know, you're, you're not living large, but you're, you're in trouble. This is the, your company. You they raised part. money for you. Yeah. Uh, you're part of this conspiracy. And, uh, and I go, yeah, but I fired him. And I go, firing him wasn't the s- solution. You had to return all the money. Because as soon as they made misrepresentation, the way fraud works, as soon as you make a misrepresentation, a material misrepresentation, even if you intend to use the money for what you say you're going to use it for, if you induce the investment, and this is something budding producers need to understand, if you induce someone to invest... On false pretenses. Or, right, right. Right. Then it becomes... Doesn't matter what fraud. you use the money yeah, for. Yeah, even if you put the money right where you said you were going to put it. Right. It's fraud. Right. So... Because you talked them into it through yeah. fraud, essentially. Yeah, yeah you talked right. them into it. So, so at first I'm like, oh, I can't possibly be... You know, I mean, I've been doing this stuff making the best movies I can, money goes back to the, you know, we, we're, we're sending properly, the money we earn is going back to investors. Movies aren't always doing great, but they're getting their money. They're getting what they're supposed to get. In right. other words, there's no, I, I, I'm, I'm living in a, an apartment, not a home. I don't own a house. I don't have a fancy car. I don't have anything like that. Right. Well, that doesn't, they don't care, right? And they tell me, they say, look, you know, you're in trouble, but we understand that you're a little different than these guys. Right. And, you know, you're not, you weren't the one raising the money. And they told me right there the first day, they said, we got you on the phone. There were a couple of times when they had someone posing as an investor who wanted to speak to me, had to speak to me. And they got me on the phone two or three times. I never said anything elite, never said anything wrong, you know, whenever I actually got but on the phone. But you're in the... But I own the company. They're, I'm, I'm the beneficiary, and I'm, right. you know... And so, and they suggested I... That I that, but they, they right away they told me, and this is kind of a key point, they said, look, AUSA, the assistant U.S. attorney would be open to talking to you about cooperating if you'd like to cooperate. And I go, hell yeah, I'll cooperate. I'm not in a, I'm not intentionally defrauding anybody. Right. And maybe if I talk to them and help them in any way that I can, maybe they'll see that I was sincere and I didn't mean, you know, I got kind of trapped into a stupid situation, right? So I, I go in and I volunteer to cooperate and tell them everything I know. Yeah. And I tell them everything I know, not only about my operation, but about other operations, because if this was illegal, there's a whole lot of other ones that are, and I, you know. And you knew I, all I, about I know, them. I know who they are, right? And so, one thing leads to another, and they say, "Look, you know, we're hoping they're not going to charge me. They're going to, you know, it's like I'm going to be considered to be a, a what do they call it, an uncharged co-conspirator or something like that, mm-hmm. if I keep cooperating and I want to, and you know, but then it's like, no, no, we're going to charge you, you know, and um, so but, they told you straight up, you're yeah, they charged. say you're going to charge me, and they give me, a, and they say, well, and you, you and your attorney maybe are hoping, well, not right that. away. Well, we went like for like a year and a half." 
a year and a half go by and I meet with them three or four or five times. I give them all the information that I can about, you know, the industry of, of fundraising in this manner, which I had learned a bit about. And I did more after this all's happening. I'm researching it and I'm- Well, and also with your background. I know, I'm running like little operations to figure out where these rooms are and who they are. But not only that, but your your background to 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 see, okay, there's three guys here, they're, they're wearing these, or what, yeah, you know. Yeah. In other words, your attention to detail and your ability to remember it comes yeah. from CIA. Yeah. And, yeah. Right, so anyway, sorry, So continue. I mean, but anyway, so, so <clears throat> they come to me with a plea agreement. I remember the day. I still remember. My, my attorney calls me and says, Al, they sent over a plea agreement. It looks like you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to eat something here. And I go, okay. I'm surprised this wasn't your worst day uh, for best day, worst day, by the way. Well, you know, and it's, when I look at it, and so what they're offering me is, a, is, a, is what's called a 5K one point. It's a, it's a plea agreement where they're offering me, benef- um, offering me the opportunity to cooperate and to gain benefit for cooperating. And... And not only in my case, but in other other cases that I could help with. And I go, sure. Like I said, I'm not, you know, I was never an intentional. I didn't feel like I was a rat because I had not, in, you know, I'd fired these guys. I had, you weren't a conspirator no. to begin with. Right. So then a couple more years go by and I go undercover and I start, be, I do undercover work posing as an investor in these other film cases. Really? Yeah. To help the FBI in their, in their operation. I had no idea. And then... Uh, Meanwhile, I'm not in film anymore, right? I mean, I, I finished the movie. I finished Beneath the Blue. I get it out, and then I kind of take a, a step back from film. I wrote a book that did well called John Carter and the Gods of Hollywood. And I, I, but I'm now starting to, I get, I'm, my life's falling apart. My company's, you know, my, everything's bad, right? I'm, I'm facing yeah. something just devastating. And you don't know what the future holds. No, but I know that, I know that, I know that. You're going to go to jail at some uh, point. Probably. And, right. and, and, you know, it'd take a miracle to not go because the starting point, because they had raised $7 million for me, and th- the starting point was like six years or seven years in prison if I didn't work it off by the cooperation that I was oh. doing. And, um, and I felt horrible about what had happened. And I, felt, and, I, and I came to realize that I had made some very, very bad choices. And I had a dis- I mean, honestly, I shouldn't have been working with these guys and you know, I mean, I wanted to make it right to everybody that I could. Um, it was a huge but the money from, did get, I mean, those people got their money back. Well, the money got put in the films, but the films didn't make enough money to get them, uh, their, you know, so. So people did lose money. Yeah, people lost money. Right. And, and, and people were brought in on false pretenses and ended up losing money. And I, you know, I have to own that. And, um, and I'm, you know, I was kind of reordering my life. And I realized that, you know, my, I felt like my, just this ego-driven pursuit of my film dream had, you know, fueled by testosterone and overconfidence and, you know, it just led me to make some bad decisions. And I came to believe that, you know, I, I mean, I deserved what was happening to look, me. Look, everybody's judgment gets clouded yeah. at oh, certain times. I mean, times. I can, you, you can look at other people and say, well, I knew this guy and that guy who were, you know, literally taking the money from investors and buying a house or buying a Ferrari. Or, you know, and I never did anything like that. But right. still, I mean, you know, I, I, I made some bad choices. And, well, there know, are shades of gray here. And I had, you know? you know, I had a real high opinion of myself. And now all of a sudden, I didn't have reason to have a high opinion of myself. I had a life that had been pretty stellar in certain ways and 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 I felt 
that I was always like, if one thing falls into place on the film side, I'm going to break through into the sunlight and everything's going to be good. Right. Instead, it comes crashing down, you know, in this way. And I had to sort of regroup and, and rethink my stuff, you know. And so um, that's, you know, I, I, for four years, from two, April 2009 until December 2013, I was in limbo, cooperating, helping, and... Um, what were you doing to make money besides the book? Well, I, I, Which we can talk about a little more in, yeah, in a minute. I, I, the, I had a... Uh, one of the things that happened to me was that uh, my attorney put me in touch with a, a company that does um, what's called sentencing mitigation. They do basically write a report. They do a background investigation, and they write a report on the person who's going to be sentenced. And they, they, uh, they present that person to the court in a, in a way that, you know, is factual, but helps give the judge more information. Were, were, the, were these guys, did you feel like they were the FBI agents? Did you feel like they, they wanted you to not get, like, did you feel like they were really oh, supporting yeah. you to not get yeah. any time? No, I don't, know. I don't know about not getting any time, but I mean, they, they, they deal every day with people that get tr- caught up in stuff, and they, they didn't have, they weren't like... You thought they were fair? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. That's and, good. And then the court, the judge was fair. Everybody was fair. But then, meanwhile... I was a client of this company, and then um, and then they offered me an opportunity to do some work uh, similar to what they do, where I would I would interview people who were going for sentencing and write reports on them. It was kind of a small, but a, I felt like a socially useful job to right. help people who were in trouble. Right. And uh, I did it as a sort of a stringer. And then meanwhile, I was building websites and doing other things, and so I kind of had multiple streams of small income. Right. Um, and you I were kind of like a freelancer for these guys, though, right? Yeah, yeah. And so then... Uh, but now you're... Well, what happened was I went to sentencing in December of 2013, and uh, then I went away for one year. I was away from April 2014 until April 2015, mm. and uh, I spent a year at Lompoc University, up the up the freeway from here. Lompoc, uh, Lompoc prison? Prison camp, yeah. It's a camp. Oh, it's a camp? Well, there's a prison and there's this, what they call a satellite camp. The satellite camp is sort of the... Very the, minimum. Yeah, it's minimum security and, and you know, it's kind of like living in a military compound sort of a thing. Okay. Did that for a year and then... Were there, are there fences and walls? No. Right, okay. I've heard about this before. Yeah. They actually... You could you can kind of almost come and go. Yeah, you have a... Well, certain, you don't... You can't, no, 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 you, no, I didn't mean it that could, way, but yeah. yeah. No. But, you, you know, you have a job... You, you know, it was okay. I mean, I, I, I worked on my health. I lost a bunch of weight. I got healthy. I kind of rethought my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a lot. Gives you time to think, huh? Wrote a lot. And then, uh, and then I came out. Uh, I came out on a Friday, and then I went to work on Monday for the same company doing the same kind of work and um, have continued to do that ever since. While, so that's been, that was... T- from what 2015 April 2015 until now I've been working for that company doing not only that limited sort of work that we we're just talking about the, the sentencing stuff but basically I've evolved into a kind of a I do multimedia presentations in support of legal defense so I make like little documentary films hmm. about someone going to sentencing or I make uh presentations that are used as part of plea plea bargaining I also make presentations that are used in court trials of hmm. you know different cases and it's just basically you know sitting there and using documentary film techniques 
to put together these things. And so instead of telling you he's a good guy, you show them. You show them. And you know, guy. you have interviews, you have, you know, photos. You, you, it's like a little documentary, but it doesn't have music. You can't use that because you can't use manipulative techniques like that. Okay. But, you know, you tell the story. You make Even it, though well, cinematography can be. Yeah. But, yeah. But, you okay. Know, so, you know, Fair enough. But anyway, you know, you can't. Um, and then. Uh, so you're making little films. How long are these things? Five minutes long? No, or? they're like anywhere from. The longest ones are around 27, 28 minutes. The oh, short, wow. The shortest ones are like 50. Yeah, they're, you know, and I mean, I do it all myself. You know, I mean, I can everything shoot, edit, you know, all of that. Yeah. And you feel you're really helping people. Right. And um, what do you shoot on? I just use, you know, any kind of 4K HD, you oh. know, sort of thing. And then, okay. And then, uh, you know, Final Cut Pro and my laptop and a, and a monitor. And, you know, I, I do it. And then I also do other things that aren't multimedia. But I become, uh, you know, we become kind of a specialist in this mm -hmm. and it's had a really good impact on getting favorable outcomes for for people for people like you yeah who got I, wrapped up in yeah some well, stuff. well you find in almost every fraud case there's somebody who's like the real fraudster and there's some other people who kind of got sucked in somehow right and who actually have lived a good life otherwise and stuff like right. that so you know you, you, they're you're either a little naive or yeah but judgment clouded and stuff you know and and so i think that it's uh do they ever represent the real fraudster too? Anybody deserves full representation. Oh, you know, you know, no, 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 no. no. Yeah, you know, so we don't, we don't like. For example, I don't mean to say. The answer is yes. Okay. The answer is yes, but usually those people don't have such a compelling story to tell, and it's the ones. There's the no really, video to shoot. About it's the them. ones <laughs> with the real compelling story that you, you know, you either either where the facts of the case have real compelling elements and you're trying to get them exonerated. Yeah. Or where, for sentencing purposes their story has really compelling uh you know elements right and and so um and you feel i mean honestly and i don't this is you know we make lemonade lemonade out of lemons or whatever you know kind of my life kind of fell apart i'm trying to put it back together yeah i accept responsibility for what i did and i realize i'm a kind of a fallen character you know trying to work his way back um but you know, film. My film pursuit. My pursuit of film. I always felt like I was going to make something of such great artistic value that it would have lasting value and would therefore be some kind of meaningful contribution mm -hmm. to society. But in reality, it's real hard to do that, and you spend a lot of time working on stuff that falls way short of that. Sure, it's very forgettable, and you spend a lot of time pursuing. Well, I was. You know, it's. It, it, I was never into the fast lane of Hollywood or anything like that. But I wanted recognition. I wanted to be known as a, a truly talented, creative person. Right. Wanted to be respected by my peers. I wanted to, I wanted, you know, I wanted recognition. I wanted to make some things that would live after I'm gone. You know, which, which you some, have for sure. To, to some degree. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, it was an egotistical kind of pursuit. And I don't mean to say that's bad, and I don't mean to tell anyone don't do it for that reason, but I just, it was. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you know, I, now, every day now, you know, I mean, like when a new job comes to me, it's like I get an email from an attorney, new matter. There's some new case, some new person with a problem, mm -hmm. and I'm able to help that person. I'm able to help them not only get a better outcome, but help them understand their their situation and you know kind of get through it so i mean i do are you used that way a little bit too yeah, with the person yeah, as, yeah. A, as like a consultant of well part of what you do yeah part of what you do is like you're talking to them about their 
um, you talk to them about the, their case, what they're going to face when they get in there, and you're also doing long interviews of their life to get their life story and everything. And and in the process, you know, yeah, you become kind of, you know, you're helping them get through it. Right. Um, but you can guide them a little having been through it yourself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Are these, are, are, are a lot of these people, is it just fraud in general? or is No, it, no, no. It's any other kind of case. Everything from, but I mean. No, no, no. But I mean, are, the, are they doing a lot of like movie fundraising no, no, stuff? No, or, no, no, Okay. No. So it's not related to that. No, it's a lot. There's a whole lot of like. It's whatever. Pharmaceutical fraud, medical fraud. Lots of that sort of stuff. Workers' compensation fraud. Got it. And also non-fraud cases. I mean, other cases that just, you know, anything from somebody who tried to bribe the IRS to somebody who has a uh, to murder case. We've done, we do capital murder cases. Got it. And so this cases, is a full-service law for, firm. For, 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 for right. murder cases, we're, we're always the ones trying to help them not get life, not get... Uh, death penalty? Death penalty, yeah. Right. You know, so we, we're on that, that part of it. <coughs> is this a... National law firm or no, just no. California? Yeah, okay. Yeah, California. I mean, I don't. I, yeah. It sounds like you don't want to say the name. No, no. Well, actually, right. we work with it's. It's an investigative firm, and then there's we work with a dozen or so oh, different right. lawyers. Right. Yeah. Sorry. So, yeah. so there's different lawyers and stuff. But I got I, it. Right. But I, I mean, I'm. I don't know whether it probably doesn't matter if I mention everybody's name, but I'll just leave them. You know, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. No problem. So. Um, well, that's really interesting. I mean, for look for something really hard to have happened to you and you know to spend a year in 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 jail over it was that federal yeah in, federal. in federal prison um it does not sound uh does not sound good so you've come out of it with a little bit of a new career yeah connected to your old career a little bit and yeah. connected to your other old career <laughs> yeah well that's part of what i i felt like was it kind of assimilates stuff that I've done in other parts it's of my life. kind of perfect in yeah. certain ways. And uh, and I do other little documentary films on the side. Yeah. Everybody has a side hustle, right? Sure. You know, and I, you know, I have projects and um, I have, uh, you know, I, I write books and I've had one book that became a bestseller on, on an Amazon bestseller in film, film history and criticism. Well, I mean, uh, it was about John Carter. Before. Yeah, John Carter and the Gods of Hollywood. It was basically a... It's about John Carter, that the movie, movie getting... Yeah. I was I was a big fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs, the author of the Princess uh, Princess of Mars, and all the books that were the source for John Carter. Right, and so I was following it very very closely, and when it kind of fell apart during the marketing phase, um, I began blogging about it, uh-huh. and then I had a blog site called the John Carter Files, still up there, and and then when the movie came out, and it didn't do well, but it it gained a lot of adherence. A lot of people really liked it. There's fan groups out there around. Oh, the world. really? Yeah, but at the same time, it didn't do well financially, and it was way over budget. You know, they they shot it. They spent. It it's was like bi- three hundred million dollars. Yeah, it was right? like the biggest budget at the time. So I and it made like eighty million dollars at the box office or something in the U.S. I mean, it you know it lost money and it lost big money and yeah and, and and Disney really botched the marketing and promotion of it. And I I wrote like this investigative piece in my blog. <laughs> it was like a three part piece, which I called. John Carter, the flop that wasn't a turkey, and it was the story of how this movie got mishandled, and the, and I got a lot of encouragement when I wrote it to expand it into a book, and so that's what I did. Did and you have then, a lot? You had a lot of readers. Yeah. Oh yeah. My blog got very popular, and you know, it was kind of 
Uh, because what happened when Disney kind of ditched the movie, when the movie came out and it kind of didn't do so well, and then Disney two weeks later came out and says, oh, we're writing off a $190 million loss and we're kind of dumping the movie. Meanwhile, there were these people that were just discovering this wonderful world of Barsoom that had been created by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And, and uh, Andrew Stanton had directed it, you know, and it was like uh, they, there, was, there were fans. And so they felt this great sense of outrage at what had happened and mm-hmm. how it had been mishandled. And so that fueled the blog, which was getting like, I'm not saying tons of, but it was getting like eight, ten thousand 10,000 know, d- views a day. I mean, it was not bad for some wow, that's movie a lot. blog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so I had like this sort of a constituency to read the book. And so I put the book out, you know, and it started, people started reading it. And the way it works on Amazon, you start getting reviews and positive reviews. And then the more reviews you get, the algorithms will pick it up. I mean, it's out there today. It has 230 reviews, which for an independently released book is a lot. Wow. And it was number did one. Did you self-release or? Huh? Who released it? I did. I had a company. Sell- yeah, yeah, yeah. Self-released. Okay. I, I, I created a, 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 an imprint. I have like, there are five books, not just mine. Other books are on the, on the label now. Oh, really? Cool. But I put it out, not expecting much, you know, and never even thinking of doing anything other than just self-releasing. It was a blog, you know, it was a kind of an outgrowth of the blog. It right. was kind of a social. But... It ended up being number one in two two different Amazon categories. One was film history and criticism. That's where it was first number one, about four months after it came out. And uh, film history and criticism, and it was right there with Argo, the book of the book about Argo. It was funny. We were two CIA stories up there are two CIA authors in film history and, 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 and it's somebody you know yeah I know <laughs> it's a friend of yours and then a whole a year later it went up to number one in um, uh, entertainment business hmm. and it was it was there with Moneyball <laughs> so it's really I mean it's crazy right it's Michael I mean, Lewis Money, Moneyball made real money I mean I'm, these, these are category bestsellers not overall bestsellers but yeah. you know I mean, it ended up making me I probably made more money from it than I did from some of the, you know, my fees as movie directors and stuff like that. So, you know, it was better. But anyway, I, I did that, and I that's funny. And I continue to write, and I have a year of the spy we talked about. You know, it's just kind of in process, and hope it'll come out uh, in the next year or so. And and I'm trying to just kind of live my life, you know, and uh, be a little more humble than I was, and stay healthy. And, I have uh, to say, you've mentioned twice. You said you had kind of a lot of bravado, or whatever the words you used. maybe not bravado, not bravado but, but testosterone. I said, okay, yeah. you know, a little, little inflated ego. I think you said right, something like that. I don't know if it's inflated. Well, I did. Grant, you know what? But, yeah, yeah, um, I did. But I never, you know, when I worked with you, this is right yeah. before this all exploded. Yeah. I never saw that. I never felt that way. Well, here's what it, here's what it is. It's a self esteem. I mean, I've gone through you know a lot of soul searching on this. Yeah, yeah. I would never have said I had a self-esteem problem, but here's what I had. I grew up as a with a military father who challenged me to be my best and do everything that I could mm-hmm. and was always telling me I could be better and telling me that I'm lazy, telling me that I could be this, that, or the other great, wonderful thing, right? Right. And I came to believe that I was destined for greatness, mm. and if I didn't achieve greatness, I really wasn't worthy. It wasn't that I was worth less. You know, I didn't have that kind of self-esteem problem where I think, oh, I can't do anything. I, I felt very confident in my interactions with people. I felt confident that I could do this job or that job. But I was driven to do something great. Mm-hmm. It wasn't enough to just live a life, right. live a moderately successful reason. I do more. So when I talk about 
there, I, I would characterize that as a sense of grandiosity that I, you know, I, I, right. I needed, I was, I was a failure if I didn't become a Steven Spielberg right. or something like that. Right. And, and, you know, I've learned to think of myself a little differently and learn to, you know, accept the, the flaws and accept the fact that, you know, I've also learned to accept I'm not as smart as I thought I was. I mean, I'm not, you know, there are creative geniuses out there yeah. that, you know, I could, I believe I could do a really good job of making a certain type of big movie. Like, for example, you know, I could have made, I don't know, I like to think I could have made Legends of the Fall. I could have made The Last Samurai. I could have made, there are certain movies that I think are my kind of movie that I kind of grew up in. I never got to make those as an indie where you've got to have a different kind of story. A little too big. Yeah, too big, you know. Right. But I also see movies all the time now that I love or TV now or Netflix or whatever. And I kind of go, yeah, you know what? You aren't that smart. They're smarter than you are. They're better than you are at what they're doing, you know? I know. I think about that, too, when I watch really great stuff. Yeah. I think, yeah. God, I thought, you know, I thought I had a, a higher than average yeah. level of intelligence, and these people make me look like a dummy. Well, and I really, you know, and I, and I, <laughs> I, I, I honestly have that feeling sometimes. And I feel like, okay, you know yeah. what? It's like my reach and my ego. When I talk about ego, it's sort of that, that I thought, right. you know, we, we grow up in this world where we're told, look, you know, you don't give up on yourself. Never give up on your dream, right? Keep believing. You're going to have failure and failure, and then finally there's going to be success. And so, you, you know, you kind of grow up in that, and I had that going on. Right. And then led me into a bad place. Now, it is a problem because not everyone can create the show Mindhunters or... Or, or you know, or or whatever the yeah. whatever the thing you're thinking of that's so smart. Not everybody can do that. Some people are just gonna, fa- and I'm not saying you yeah. because well, but I mean, I, I I had my chance. I mean, I got to make as a director and a writer director maybe three movies that had a shot at breaking out, had a shot at being that year's Little Miss Sunshine or that year's you know something that would have got me to the next level. Right. And and I didn't. They didn't. Right. You know, there's and a there's there's a lot of luck involved in that maybe, kind of thing. Maybe, but you for know, sure. But for I mean, sure. the thing is, is I'm not, I'm not down on myself so much as I'm trying to kind of. It's what they call right size your ego, right? Have your ego fit your capability, and I'm trying to be that way, and I'm trying to, you know, um, f- there are things that I can do pretty well. Mm-hmm. Like for example, this work that I do now in the in the legal field, I think I may be one of the very I'm a I'm a I'm a top Pretty level practitioner. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I mean I but I mean from filmmaking point of view it's kind of like pretty primitive or basic kind of stuff, right? But to be able to do it in the right way, strike the right notes for the right audience and help people. I mean it's you know, I, I feel like I have some good talent there. It's niche. It's very, yeah, it's very niche, niche, but it yeah. but it takes talent. Yeah. It yeah. takes skills and and um and over your years you've developed them and that's why you're good at it. I mean yeah. The thing is, one thing I am is that I'm, I'm uh, if you kind of roll the clock back and you look at the stories that I told in the years in which they happened, I'm at an age where I should be retired and I am going to be retiring. I'm not going to be retiring anytime soon. Well, that's unfortunate. So, I mean, was there know. a monetary penalty along with your sentence? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I basically created sort of a, a monthly obligation that, you know, is is eating, you know, makes it hard to get ahead. and. 
You kind right. of, you know, like that. But I mean, it's okay. I like did, you I, bought a house, but you don't own the house. No, I don't. I can't own a house. No, but you know what I mean. Yeah, like yeah. it's like a mortgage payment. Yeah, every month, but I mean, right? I, you know, I earned it. I mean, I, 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 I have, uh, I, I have, I have obligations that I have to pay, and I pay them. And, and but that money goes to those people. Yes. Good. So are the are the other well, guys it paying the it government. back? It goes to the government, and the government is responsible to. But the disbursement, yeah, yeah, they just yeah, they give yeah. the money back to the people yeah. who, yeah, that's good. I mean, you know, it stinks that you're in the situation, but you that's know, okay. well, it could be worse. How long? How long are the other guys doing? Oh yeah, no, they did. They're in the the, the top guys got like fifteen years. Right. For the one thirty-five million dollars, and you know, they were the ones telling the lies and all that. I mean, I was the least. I had the shortest. So there were fourteen of them, right? Yeah. They all went longer than No, there's more than 14. There was like, it ended up being like 18 or 19. They all went longer. Yeah, they're out there. They were 18, they're all, I think. They're yeah. all in federal prison. Well, some of them are out now because it's been how many years? But the ones, okay. the big ring. The guys who got five years are out or whatever, yeah, right? Yeah, but uh, uh, I was like last in, first out. You right. Know? But Did they give you time for good behavior or anything? You get like in federal, it does, you get you get 15% for that. Okay. Yeah. But not, not nothing. Good. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> but my point is, you instead of doing something that I think you enjoy now and that you're good at, you could be sitting in a cell somewhere. Oh, yeah. But you made the right decisions and you yeah, know helped. Yeah, well, and, I made bad decisions and I then tried to. Make I understand, it right, but, but yeah, you yeah. know, you made a you made a big mistake, and then you've ever since then you've been fixing the mistake. I think so. I mean, I try, you know, and right tried to. Uh, it's integrity. That's my well. Point. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I like. Obviously, I want to believe that, and I believe that I've tried to deal with this in the right way. I really regret the bad judgment that put me in the situation of in the course. first place. Yeah, and I'm I'm truly sorry for you know decisions that I made and selfishness that I exhibited. That was what it really was. It was my yeah. you know it was like and um, deluding myself that some things were okay when they weren't, and you know right. all that. But you know, having said that. You know, life goes on, and um, have I, you have you ever spoken to any of the? Oh yeah, I have been I'm in touch with a number of the investors. Um, some of them are you know sympathetic and or kind of you know don't see me as the, but others I'm sure you know feel very much that you they know, think you're just the same as the other guys, or or, or you know consider me to be the because I'm the one they trust. I'm the one that, that maybe gave them reason to trust because of my background and my, you know, my profile. It was like, well, this is somebody we can trust. Mm-hmm. And so they they feel very let down. Right, so when your name got used even by the guys to tell yeah. them this is the guy, then you almost feel like you did that to them. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Well, all you can do is we all make mistakes and you try to you try to – make them make it better I mean well, you know you try to not make the same mistake again. I've never done things in a small way unfortunately I've sort of you know <laughs> kind of done some but I'm getting over this and you know I'm I'm pretty like uh, I mean I'm living a smaller smaller life but a life that feels useful and feels uh, socially productive you good know, to help people and you know so, two, yeah. two things two more things and then we can finish up here one is I heard that the judge had some very nice things to say to you when he sentenced you. Yes. Okay. He did. That's good. I so, th- but that's an acknowledgement that you know. Yeah. A good life can have a mistake in it, even a big one. 
Yeah. So anyway, I just thought I'd. Say oh, I appreciate that. that. Yeah, yeah. But but secondarily, different subject. When is the when is the other book going to come out? Because the story you told me, yeah. if in more detail, I think would be fascinating. Yeah. So the, the the year of the spy. The year of the spy. Yeah. I mean, I, unfortunately, because I'm in the grip of the CIA review process. Um, I can't say, but I, I I can I can only hope. Is the book done? The to book your? is done. Okay. Uh, the, well, the book was done to my satisfaction and approved. I went back and forth with CIA a number of times, got their approval. Only then could I submit it to my, an agent. The agent then, and I got a good agent, a major you know New York agent. Oh, cool. But then he had change changes right oh so you make those your editor makes changes then i make changes and then it has to go back to cia right then it comes back from cia and then we've got to clean up whatever it is that they said no isn't okay right and then finally one more time so this is it's a process you know okay I can't so you're in day. the pr- you're yeah. in the mix of that but how I'm, long has that been going on yeah, it's been going on for about four years it's no. not unusual for it to, well i mean a lot of that has been writing time but the okay. total amount of time that the cia has had it under review in the various review stages is probably like a year and a half. Jeez. Uh, you know, that's how long they've had it in their hands while I have to sit and sort of wait. You just wait for them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's too bad. Yeah. Well, it's okay. Life goes on. Yeah. But I do, you know, I did something to look forward to and I hope that it'll... Do you think it's close to coming out? Do you think it's months? Do you think no. it's... No. Well, because of, it depends a little bit on what the release scenario is because we're trying to have, we're hoping for a you know, a more major publisher, and they plan out a little bit farther in advance. Right. So even if you get one, it'll be a. a yeah, but while. I don't know for sure how it's going to come out and whether it'll be. But I'd, I'd say it's a year out at least. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Well, I'll look. I'll look for it. Look for it. Well, let's. You know, I'll be out there making noise about it when the time comes. Well, it, it's kind of the, the, the exact kind of book I like because I'm I'm super into nonfiction. Yeah. So if you look at my bookshelf over there, when yeah. we, I've you know Michael Lewis and all these like. Um, a, a bunch of different Dave Eggers, a bunch of nonfiction guys. So anyway, um, but I really appreciate hearing your story. And uh, uh, yeah. I, it's it's a story. I mean, you know, it's a story, and we you know you live and learn. And I mean, maybe you know, yeah, I know that people that hear your your podcast are a lot of filmmakers. I mean, just be careful when it comes to right. raising money. And and you know, I had a s- civil attorney telling me everything was legal. Did and, you really? Yeah, and yeah. I mean, you know, I thought it was, but then once they went off the rails and started saying the things that they said, mm. um, even whatever the paperwork was all legal, you know, it, it's not legal anymore. Right. You know, you can't make, you know, so. It I mean, seems to me you felt a twinge before this. Yeah. That you, you felt something was a little. No, I was like, I mean, that's where off. I feel like I made like a deal. I mean, I don't want to say a deal with the devil, but I was, you know, they were. They were, uh, it was too good to be true. Right. You know, it seems too good to be true. Probably is. Right. You know, but my artistic ego was, oh my God, I can direct. I'm going to have funding. I'm going to have a team working for me. Right. And I just kind of didn't think about what I was, you know, I didn't really think it through properly. And that was a mistake. But yeah. Anyway, so, it, so trust your instincts. I think so. And also yeah. just, you know. If it feels weird, if it feels too good to be true, it is. Yeah. Right. And, uh, yeah, I think that's that. That's that's it. And just you know, be be careful and and uh, you know, don't let your ego run away from you. I mean, I just you know, that's what I what I really look back on and say. Well, I was just so single mindedly determined. 
right. you know, and, uh, you know, it shouldn't have been that way. But anyway, it is what it is. I don't, I know I find, as we get to the end of this, I sound, I feel like I sound a little sad. I, I'm sad. I'm sorry for what happened, but I'm really very optimistic every day in my life. I'm happy to be doing things that I like and have people. It's only the last few minutes that I felt like you were down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, like you walked in and every, you're very upbeat. Yeah. And uh, very positive, so yeah. that's that's well, I'll good. Say that way. Well, that's you know what else can you do? That's right. Right. Yeah. So good for you. All right, man. And th- thanks again. I I do appreciate it. Okay. And I really enjoyed it. It's been great. <laughs> thanks. Thanks again to Michael. That was really a fun interview, and I really enjoyed it. I hope all of you listening enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing it. Uh, And if you did enjoy it, go to patreon.com slash walking backwards and sign up to be a patron and support the show. And you can hear all the best day, worst day segments that are Patreon only. All right. Thanks. uh, Thanks again to Walter Clausen. And thank you very much for listening. I'll catch you next time.